Der Vaz Voigi, Minyaza Vut David, Yastudient, Yashot Landit, Ya Prores Enthusiasts. <laughs> that's like, that's extremely good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's literally all my Russian. I, I don't want to five for the purposes of something later on. But, um, <laughs> Excellent. I, I was um, I, I realized this weekend, you know how people are like, they only smoke when they drink. Yes. I'm that, but with my learning Russian and Duolingo. When I've had a drink in the pub, I'll do like four Duolingo lessons. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> you, you, you're basically drunk enough where you think like it's a good idea to try and get to grips with Russian. Yes, uh, the yabloka falls not far from the tree. I know that is early Duolingo Russian vocab. Cause <laughs> it is uh, called a Ringo in Japanese. Yes. Please send no more fan mail to my orchard after <laughs> April the 15th. This is a great start to the episode. <laughs> They're going to be so confused if they've not read the title. If they've, if they've put this in a playlist and it's just went on, they'll be like, what on earth is going on here? Yes, we, we, we maybe should uh, inform the listeners what the hell is going on. So uh, uh, in, in English this time, greetings. Welcome to episode number 24 of the Puro Puro podcast. I am George Thompson. With me, as you will have heard, is Dorset Tones at the outset, uh, David Forrest. Uh, Big Vince has been unfortunately incapacitated by the heat today. So it will just be uh, me and David, but we will get him back for the next one. As for why David was speaking in Russian, the reason will soon become apparent. This is because we have decided to embark upon a project which is kind of one of the first ideas we had as uh, something to do with the podcast uh, when we first started uh, setting it up back in 2016 and talking about like so what kind of things would you want to uh, to discuss any ideas for arcs and that is the um, potentially uh, provisionally called Triple C Triple P which is a, uh, a look at wrestlers from the former Soviet Union in Japanese wrestling hence the Russian so um, what we're going to do is a we, we've got a plan for five parts. It might end up being more. It usually does. Um, just definitely look, will be. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> will be. Just looking at uh, different aspects of um, Soviet uh, wrestlers and indeed uh, wrestlers from post-Soviet uh, republics after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in uh, Japanese professional wrestling. So what we're going to do with this episode, we're going to look at the uh, start of it. Uh, specifically a show from 1989 called uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling Battle Satellite in Tokyo Dome. But um, as for how we actually got to the point where wrestlers from the Soviet Union were competing in Japan. Um, it's good to look at it in, I think, the context of the uh, what was going on in the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, we need to do a disclaimer at the outset uh, that um, we are, uh, we're, we, we, myself, David and Daniel, all identify with some form of communism. Um, I think it's fair to say, but we are certainly not uncritical defenders of the Soviet Union. We are on record as saying that Joseph Stalin was quite a bad guy. And uh, you know who agrees? Hot take. With, Huge you know, of truth. <laughs> and you know who agree, agrees with us on that? Nikita Khrushchev. Now ask yourself, could you reasonably call someone who agrees with Nikita Khrushchev a tanky? I think not. So um, <laughs> we are... Uh, 
on the other hand, we are people who are interested in the Soviet Union and in its uh, culture and its cultural achievements. Um, sport being uh, being one of these. Um, you think of in terms of club football, just to give one example, uh, the great Dynamo Moscow team of 1945 that toured the UK and played against all of the top uh, English and Scottish club sides. Valery Lobanovsky's uh, Dynamo Kiev side of the 80s, uh, which was very influential tactically, and so on and so forth. But for as what was going on in the Soviet Union. Uh, um, really, you have to go back to the to the start of the 80s. So after the death of uh, Leonid Brezhnev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union, he was replaced by a guy called Yuri Andropov and then a guy called Konstantin Chernenko. And both of those guys lasted about as long as your average uh, stardom trio's title run. And uh, after <laughs> Chernenko popped his clogs, um, the hot seat was taken by someone you will probably be more familiar with, which was Mikhail Gorbachev. Now, at the time, the Soviet system was very much creaking at the at the, uh, the seams. Um, it was uh, sort of collapsing under the weight of its own own contradictions, and the economy was uh, was stagnating. And uh, Gorbachev saw it as his duty to uh, try and preserve the Soviet Union and stop it from breaking apart and preserve some form of communism. Uh, this certainly wouldn't have been a communism that Stalin would have recognised, but a form of communism nonetheless. And his two flagship policies were firstly one called Perestroika, which was a kind of economic and political liberalisation. Um, so, for example, tariffs on goods were uh, relaxed and even, even abolished in some cases. Um, and, uh, you know, it, there was less protectionism. Foreign brands were allowed into the Soviet Union. You know, the, the regulations and exports of Soviet goods were changed, you know, a whole host of, uh, of things. And uh, there was also a second kind of liberalisation called Glasnost, which was uh, could be more defined as a kind of cultural opening up uh, to the wider world. So this isn't really to say that the Soviet Union was isolationist culturally, um, and no, no, the Eastern Bloc countries weren't. I mean, not you know, I think we've mentioned on more than one occasion the story about Norman Wisdom being the uh, the top movie star in Albania, and um, you know, uh, if you watch a very interesting documentary called Chuck Norris versus Communism, is about how loads of people in Romania were bootlegging uh, American action film VHSs, and how the guy who was in charge of the distribution network had basically become this untouchable crime baron who the regime <laughs> couldn't get because every time they sent the police round to arrest him, he just paid them off with um, like like a, a hooky VHS rip of Die Hard or something <laughs> like that and, um, and just sent them on their way. And um, so that's all in good fun. And, you know, Soviet youths were aware of Western groups such as the Beatles and the Stones, even though they weren't meant to be. And, um, you know, as in culture, so in sport, the, the, the Soviet Union really, it was isolationist in the sense that um, there were restrictions on people's uh, freedom to, uh, to play where they wanted. You know, if you were a footballer uh, in an Eastern Bloc country and you fancied a transfer to a, a team in Western Europe, pretty much your only option was to defect. You would have to give up your citizenship and you would have to move to the country where you wanted to play and there was uh, there was no going back. And Pushkus is a great example of that. Like, of yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you just literally like, so Hungary probably would have been world champions if it wasn't for the fact that Pushkus had to like flee the country in like 57 and go to Real Madrid like and then you had another generation of Hungarian players coming through whereby 
there was that sort of point where they would have been amazing if the two generations colliding, but half of them had to leave. So yeah, but I've, they, I've just I've actually just finished watching uh, finished uh, reading Jonathan Wilson's book called uh, The Names Heard Long Ago, which is about Hungarian football in the first half of the 20th century. And basically, yeah, the um, I think what happened was that um, at the time of the Hungarian uprising, a load of top Hungarian footballers were actually out of the country playing a European tie. Yeah. And, and then a load of them just never came back. So, like, yeah, you did have to defect. But um, so it was isolationist in that sense. But um, uh, the Soviet. Sorry, go on, David. I, I was going to say, if you'd like, if you would allow me to uh, uh, indulge in a little bit of my uh, classical uni course um, education uh, on yes, this uh, matter. Go, um, go, go, go for it. Yeah, it was a, very much a liberalisation of what people could view like so i mean i give you an example i have a friend a good friend uh, named alex who's a uh, latvian he was born in the soviet union and i remember when the last star wars film came out um, i told him i was going to see star wars and he told me a story that uh, before perestroika glasnost he uh, they, they they were going to premiere star wars on soviet television and the entire nation was enthralled and then like with 10 minutes to go they cancelled it due to like state censorship and put on just some weird uh, like dark cartoon instead <laughs> and he'd like, never seen star wars but he always remembered just staying up at night for like this total like, national event and then yeah, they just they just didn't show it because I, but by the end like i mean like for example a lot of the magazines and stuff like that were where there was print, magazines being printed that were literally just printing they called it samizdat which is like sort of contraband material ah where, yes yes, yes. um and they would just like you'd have entire magazines that just print books uh, in magazine form for people to um to uh, to read and stuff like that and by the end you were getting lots of sort of bands people and um offers and like sort of music and stuff like that coming in so yeah by by this time it, it kind of started to seep in but i think a lot of it was to do with the fact that because of the the, the state that russia was in at the time or the Soviet Union to give uh, credo to our CIS brothers. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think like the problem for the Soviet Union was is that there was very much uh, a contracting of uh, the sphere of influence, whereby places like East Germany and Poland and stuff like that were kind of having their own democracy movements, and it, it looked inevitable that it. I mean, by the time of this show, we're, we're in the full throes of like Hungarian and Polish revolution, like you know, coming into effect and stuff like that, and. East Germany and Czechoslovakia and all that, and they he, they saw this sort of what was happening where people wanted to become more connected to the West, and I think Soviet Union saw it as a chance of going if we liberalise a little bit and allow people access to these sort of things, maybe they won't all rush to the European Union, and you know what I mean they won't all rush to NATO so to speak because they're more likely to if we can keep them on our good side and that yeah but. Yeah, and that, that was why, because he wanted to keep their sort of trading links with things like East Germany and Poland and things like that, and like a liberalisation allowed them to do that and not be seen as the big bad ogre, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the yeah, the year of the show, 1989. I mean, that's a fascinating time in history for many reasons. But by the end of the uh, of the year, the Berlin Wall's down. Uh, Ceausescu and his missus have been offed. You know, like there's um like there's all sorts. So it, it's a really interesting time just like the sort of the death throes really of the of this of the uh, soviet union but like uh to go back to like the uh the sporting aspect uh, of it all like you know the, the this the soviet union was isolated in in the sentio um in terms of the freedom of uh its athletes to play where they wanted i mean in um 
in this is not this not being the Soviet Union, but in in Hungary, famously they had the Kispest Honved, which was a kind of state football team where most of the national uh, players were forcibly moved, and uh, and in East Germany, um, the Stasi's fam- favorite team, Dynamo Berlin would uh, like have a lot of refereeing favors done to, done to them players forcibly transferred there in terms of international sport um certainly much less isolationist the soviet union set a great deal of store by good results in well firstly world cups in key sports such as football basketball and ice hockey which are all very popular in the eastern bloc countries and most of all the olympic games you know the uh, the competition for first place in the medals table between the usa and the ussr was always a key part of the narrative of the olympics during the cold war and i mean in this decade we also had the um, Western boycott of the Moscow Olympics in 1980 and the retaliate, retaliatory boycott by Warsaw Pact nations in uh, 1984 when the Olympics was in Los Angeles. So it's it's and like you, you'll see why the Olympics is um, uh, an important touchstone um, in a minute. But uh, the, the other interesting thing to note is that um, diplomatic relations between Russia and Japan had very much uh, not not always been cordial to, uh, to say the least. Um, they were on opposite sides during the Cold War, one country being capitalist and one being communist. Uh, also opposite sides in World War II, uh, with the, the roles being reversed in that the USSR was an American ally and Japan was an American enemy. And even before that, you had the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. And Japan's victory in that war uh, was a not inconsiderable factor in the decline of popularity of the Romanov dynasty, paving the way for the Russian Revolution of 1905 and later the uh, Communist Revolution of 1917 and the abolition of the uh, of the imperial system um, and the creation of the Soviet Union. So in a way, Japan was responsible uh, for the foundation of, of the USSR in part. Even today, like... Even today, Russia and Japan aren't exactly cordial because of like the, the Kuril Islands and stuff like that. Like they're still like Russia invaded islands during the uh, the end of the Second World War, and then at the end they were just like, "We'll just keep these." And then Japan, are like, <laughs> but, can, like, but like, there's mainly Japanese people that live there, and like, it's a pain in the ass. Can we not just no, 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 no Russian <laughs> islands? And like, yeah, they still like to this day they still bicker over the Kuril Islands, and it's like. What are you going to do, man? What are you going to do? (laughs) Absolutely. But there's one man who um, gives no heed to um, any sort of diplomatic (laughs) barriers uh, between countries, a man who is always wanting to bring nations together. And that man is Mr. Antonio Inoki, the founder of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Now, Inoki, um, throughout his uh, life, has uh, been certainly very willing to do business with uh, various unsavory regimes. Um, And sometimes that has been to a net benefit, as when he uh, negotiated the release of several Japanese hostages from Saddam Hussein's government in Iraq, and sometimes not uh, for the good of humanity, as when he accepted $15 million from the North Korean government in 1995 to produce a wrestling show in Pyongyang during the worst famine in that country's history. What else are they going to spend on drugs? (laughs) Yeah, I know, like, sort of relief. No, fuck that. No. Let's, let's hire Chris Benoit and two cold Scorpio. <laughs> George, are you honestly saying to me if you ran a totalitarian dictatorship and somebody could you go, leader Stato, um, <laughs> we, 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 we must, you must choose. We have 15 million. Uh, what will we spend on? We could, we could uh, use lots of aid relief and we could like feed the country or you could have like Toriano and um, <laughs> get like hyper missile. 
um, to do like a, 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 a stadium show in Pyongyang. And yeah, I mean, I, imagine the imagine the meetup with the generals um, before that show, like one of the few occasions in which Chris Benoit had one of the lowest future body counts in the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, Inoki very willing to do business with uh, Iraq, North Korea, and also with. Did he not have a challenge Idi Amin to a scrap? God, I hope so. I mean, was Idi, Idi Amin was a yeah. like Commonwealth boxing champion at some point? Or yeah, something? I think that's why. He, I think that. I genuinely think that's uh, why he challenged him because he was like a boxer and like a, a feared dictator, and he was like, like um, come ahead. This is actually this is really one. This whole uh, show is one of Inoki's um, like more sane initiatives. <laughs> like, yeah. um, so basically, what um, what happened in uh, in Japan at the time? So 1988, uh, the Tokyo Dome opened. This is a brand spanking new baseball stadium in uh, Tokyo to house the baseball team, the Yomiuri Giants, built on the site of the old Korokuen Stadium, which um, had been the home of the Giants and also uh, the site of uh, quite a few. Uh, famous wrestling shows, including most notably the first NWA title match between Rikidos and Luthers on Japanese soil in 1957. Um, now, as I believe all... the I believe the architects of the Tokyo Dome. I believe the, the famous quote about when they said about it was that it was going to be like for hell but with horse pies. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I've heard very bad things about the chicken nuggets at Corken Hall. So, um, um, like, I don't. Oh, know Tokyo Dome Strand is amazing. Like, it, I, I is was it? Going oh, yeah, the, went yeah, for the baseball. They, they have like thirty-five restaurants, and they're <laughs> they're all That's insane. Awesome. You could honestly go to a game, like every game in the baseball season, and get a different meal. Each time that's insane that's pretty great i mean at, at the time of uh, of this show uh i mean the tokyo dome is obviously very famous as a uh, wrestling venue now even though there's like one show a year um there and i know new japan we're going to do a second quite ill-advised one um this year probably would have been ill-advised even without the pandemic but in 1989 no wrestling shows had actually been run there yet the building was very new and you know inoki's never seen a, a large building he uh, doesn't think he can fill and you know in the case of pyongyang he was very much right about this but um he decided that he needed something big to sort of get people in the doors and the idea he chanced upon as of course you would was bringing in amateur wrestlers from the soviet union uh to be part of new japan pro wrestling and this is kind of in keeping with um a lot of uh the way in which Inoki had done business before new japan was famous for the uh work shoots or different style fights as they were known between um New Japan wrestlers, mainly Inoki, it's got to be said, and uh, various martial artists. Um, the most notorious example being uh, his uh, somewhat farcical fight with Muhammad Ali in 1972, but also um, you know, big names in karate and uh, judo, you know, all, all the different martial arts, uh, amateur wrestling as well. And uh, so the idea was, OK, we'll bring in these Russians, we'll teach them a bit of pro wrestling and they can be uh, an invading force. Um, on the show. So it was really billed as a battle of uh, three great uh, wrestling nations, these being Japan, uh, the Soviet Union and uh, the USA. There were also uh, American wrestlers uh, on the show. So what we're going to do with this is we are just going to review all of the matches from this rather uh, rather lengthy show um, that had uh, Russian wrestlers in them. Th th so we've got uh, six matches for you. This is the most matches we've ever covered in an episode where we're actually reviewing them properly and it's not just I had breakfast during the Gorillas of Destiny match, the square sausage referring. 
Um, so we're going to take you on a, a nice magical mystery tour of uh, six different matches on this show. The date is the 24th of April 1989, and we are at to- the Tokyo Dome for New Japan Battle Satellite. I should also mention this uh, show is mentioned in the final chapter of The Rise and Fall of Ricky Dozan, available from uh, Amazon for the low, low price of £17.99 for a paperback. So, um, yeah, we're just going to do the matches in uh, in uh, one after the other. So the one of the centrepieces of this show was an eight-man tournament uh, for the v- uh, vacant IWGP Heavyweight Championship. This involved um, a mixture of Japanese, American and Soviet wrestlers. Uh, the there were two Soviets in this, the first of them being a chap by the name of Vladimir Berkovich. And uh, we are now going to review his uh, quarterfinal match, first round of the tournament, against the uh, legendary dragon Tatsumi Fujinami, who I don't think we've actually reviewed a Fujinami match on the podcast before, which seems a massive oversight because we've been doing this for literally half a decade. Did he not turn up in a ramble one year? I don't know as he Maybe, maybe he like, turned out in a ramble. I mean, the fucking great Kabuki was in it every year. So if I, he was fucking climbing ma- maintenance allowance for forty <laughs> year, um, I would not be sorry. He, he maybe was in a ramble. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite shocking how little we've actually covered any of like the big marquee Japanese names because we're too busy like talking about fucking shopping mall brawls and <laughs> <laughs> literally I'd, I'd like anything. Just fake Bruce, Bruce Lee cousins in World of Sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But like, no, we have not um, covered a, uh, a Tatsumi Fujinami match before. So, episode yeah, I mean, 24, guys. Episode <laughs> 24. So, uh, yeah, Tatsumi Fujinami, I mean, one of the biggest names in the history of uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling. Started out in the junior heavyweight division uh, and was a basically the ace of the junior division uh, to, towards the end of the 70s, holding the um, WWF Junior Heavyweight Championship, which was the top junior title in uh, in the company, sanctioned by the World Wrestling Federation. And from thence, he graduated to the heavyweight division and was a mainstay of that and like one of the top guys in the company uh, throughout the 80s. So it stands to reason like Fujinami is coming really coming towards the end of his career as a as a main event player. Um, you know, he's in by the mid to late 90s, he'd have like a nostalgia run, but really he was like sort of uh, getting on in years. Yeah, yes, he is still wrestling. Uh, why do you ask? Um, but um, at this point, yeah, he's clearly a guy you would have in the mix. Um, so he's very much an, uh, a, a known quantity for the crowd. They were very happy to see him. Uh, Berkovich less so. Um, he looks like every member of your university rowing team. Uh, he really like, does. Big beefy fucker. Like um, I mean, I would say I would like to stress before anyone starts doxing me and saying oh, I'm a Tory. I, I don't think my university has a rowing team. I don't think they have rowing teams in Scotland. But you're absolutely right. They do. They do. He does look like an entire university rowing team in one. You know that uh, my college uh, not only had a university <laughs> rowing t- uh, rowing team, but also several smaller um, uh, rowing teams for each of the individual colleges that make up Durham University. Um, and the budget for that would uh, swallow up approximately 98% of uh, the of the budget for uh, leisure activities. <laughs> <laughs> Colleges. It's like, oh, do you want you want three pounds for some table tennis balls? No, uh, no, sorry, we need to uh, we need to get another hat for the cocks. I am, of course, 
not speaking from experience or bitter about this in the slightest. So <laughs> those Kevlar canoes are not going to fucking um, buy themselves. Actually, this guy, this guy I went to school with, he, he lived down the road from me, joined his college uh, rowing team and like literally in his freshers week, snapped a canoe in two. <laughs> like, wait, wait, what was he? Was he on this show? <laughs> no, 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 not as like a feat of strength. It wasn't fucking Otto Vance like tearing. <laughs> they they were rowing down the river. They just broke the boat. It they Titanicked it. It, it was how 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 hyped would you be if you were watching a wrestling show and you just saw a guy come out and go, "Who is this guy?" Goes, His gimmick is he once broke a canoe in half. And you'd be like, make him world champion immediately. All like, I'm saying is, you know, Ridge Holland is coming back from injury soon. <laughs> what is Crinkle Netherlands doing in the impact zone? <laughs> he looks like the he looks like the kind of person. Uh, let, let's just say that. Um, uh, Berkovich has got uh, something I love aesthetically about the uh, about the the Russians on this show. Um, Berkovich has got the they've got the uh, the amateur singlets, the red and blue ones from the Olympics. Really weird to see the hammer and sickle on a blue background got the fucking soviet union awake kid. <laughs> yeah this is a this is a, like an anniversary third kit you know special edition <laughs> we've got 30 pounds more if you want the uh, the breathable fabric that the uh, the players have um and fujinami's got a shirt that just says dragon genesis on it incredible or, uh, or, or, uh, drag, dragon uh, dragon mega drive as it was uh, as it was also known so i honestly uh, thought that he was like he, he was wearing an, like an Evangelion shirt, and I remember that Evangelion was like six years after this. <laughs> and it was like, man, this uh, this anime looks amazing, whatever it is. I I presume they would have been very um very um averse to NGE as a uh, a clear competitor in the crowded market for um uh, the Jushin Liger anime. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that kind of look like Jushin Liger and Evangelion actually. <laughs> that, yes, there is <laughs> like feet tall um so uh this match kind of yeah i mean it does rule yeah it's um it's one of these where like most of the matches we're going to cover in this episode they are not very long at all i don't think this one even breaks five minutes uh but what they are is just it's it's a kind of semi-shoot style it's always interesting to see like who they put in these matches because there's there's one in particular uh later where there's a guy who was very much not a shoot style wrestler who goes up against one of the one of the Soviet athletes. But Fujinami is a guy. He's he's got like he's he's got he's got very good mat work and like he can gives the impression of someone who can mix it with these. Uh, Berkovich immediately takes him to the woodshed with a, with a gigantic belly to belly into like some mat work. And the crowd's really hot for this. Like, did they forget how to mic the Tokyo Dome in the last thirty years? Like the crowd's really loud. It's been, I would also say though. It is a belly to belly, and I, I, I've, I've probably mentioned this before. There is no finer sight in wrestling than someone chucking a big cunt about. No finer any sort of suplex, and like this is why these are so snackable because it's just people hugging people about like sacks of shit, and it will oh, never yeah. not be good. Yeah, it's great popcorn wrestling. This is it's it really um is. I I and like a lot of the throws on this show they're really not like um they're not clean in the same way that when we did the new japan UWFI shows um like there was a lot of german suplexes where there was no arc to it they just fuck them onto their shoulders but that that's what that's what makes these so beautiful is that that they are not clean like Fujinami nearly fucking breaks his neck on like the second throw (laughs) and you're like my 
goodness. It, like, it's amazing. Like that that's the Sarah's currently um doing a political compass um uh type thing. Basically the two axes are height and distance, and she's basically ranking all of the flog the frog splashes in wrestling. And <laughs> And she says, like, the two best frog splashes in wrestling are Montez Ford and Natsuko Tora for completely opposite reasons. Like, Montez Ford gets loads of air and loads of distance, and Natsuko Tora gets no air and no distance. <laughs> she just drops like a stone, and it's fucking amazing. <laughs> So like um and like that's the thing like I I love the big fucking like parabola Germans that like you know Chihiro Hashimoto pulls out and I also like the um the the German suplexes and like the throws like this they they go to an effort to like make it look messy and like it is a shoot even though it isn't and like I really appreciate that um as to how these matches are worked and the other thing I really liked as well is that there's a point where Fujinami does a vertical suplex and he goes for a submission rather than a pin yeah. It's really interesting because it's not KO and submission only rules. No, it's just like, yeah, like you see it quite a lot of arm bars and stuff like that from them. They just kind of it kicks in, and this kind of brought the question up for me with this: how much of this is shoot and how much of this is work? And I don't want to turn this into like one of those weird cottage industries where they're like, oh, Mark Coleman, you know, fucking laid down. Like, I don't want to turn it into that, right? He did but, though. <laughs> he, he did. He disgraced America, right? <laughs> but what what I mean like this is that like. I get the feeling that they've went to them before. Because bear in mind that Vladimir Berkovich isn't going to be fluent and uh, you know, reading kanji and katakana uh, newspapers <laughs> in the back. Uh, before the show. I mean, but, Vladimir Berkovich logging into Wanikani before the show, <laughs> trying yeah. to get to level 10 before it starts. Exactly. And I'm like, I, I, I get the feeling that they're just like, something like, they went to the interpreter and goes, could you tell him chuck me about for five minutes <laughs> and then we'll go to the finish and just let them have a bit of fun with it because they're all fucking loving it and like it, it's great like because you sometimes get this like i've mentioned this before in the, the pod right but a, a good parallel is um strangely is the tori yano versus tomohiro ishii right every time yano and ishii put, uh, fight each other they are like best pals and they just throw each other about and like y- Yano throws Ishii in ways that you know that he, he he gets height and distance from people that he doesn't get in anybody else, and Ishii's like just fucking go ham, and Ishii goes ham and him, and they really come off against each other, and they just they're, they're so comfortable with each other, and they're having fun, and they're kind of just letting cutting loose. That I feel there was a lot of that in this, whereby they've just said to him, look, cut loose, do your throws and stuff like that, don't hold back, and like it, it'll make it work, and they all seem to have that sort of thing whereby. They're, they're they're all really going for it and just kind of having a bit of fun with it. Um, because you get it, you get sometimes you get MMA guys coming like him, um, fucking uh, Tito Ortiz and Rampage Jackson and Impact. <laughs> it's just really bad. August the fourth, August the first warning. Um, it's it's really quite bad. Um, and the wrestling is terrible. But it's like when you just let them do their thing and just let the other person construct the narrative around it. It's fucking great. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and like Fujinami. I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's, there's no pin attempts in this match at all, actually. Like, uh, Fujinami is very, uh, very happy to be dropped on his head. Like, Berkovich basically hits a bloody Sunday at one point, which looks absolutely disgusting. Fujinami does not really sell it that much, and um, he he starts doing like the crowd pops so big for Fujinami's leg kicks. He's just uh, like yeah, I, I, oh, they... the shooter, like. 
they looked horrific as well. And I think it's partly because of Berkovich, because I think they maybe told him, like, the, the story is, is that I'll eventually kick you, and then you'll go, ah, and then, like, that that will be the thing, that will be the opening for me to win it. And Berkovich is like, da, yeah. Um, and then and then he kicks him. He's like, oh, yeah, fucker. <laughs> that was fucking <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. He, well, I've got in my notes, Berkovich sells well. Maybe it isn't selling. Um, no, I, I think part of it is selling, and a lot of it is, oh, my God, and that, that really, like, I did not expect it to be this bad. And then he starts, like, slapping him in the face and stuff, and he clearly, Berkovich, like, it was not ready for it, I don't think, but as well as that he kind of likes it. And it's oh, just like, ab- yeah. absolutely. Like he's it's just so clearly, clearly extremely hard bloke. Like, um, and uh, I mean, in the in the in the end, uh, <laughs> Fujinami does a drop kick, which is extremely funny. Um, and um, but like, I kind of like that he's mixing the pro wrestling techniques in there, even though he's kind of wrestling it a bit like a, a UWF match. In that he's uh, so he's showing he can meet the 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 Russian like in his world, which I think it's is lovely a, to see Fujinami as well, like allowing Berkovich to just absolutely hand him his arse on the map and just like totally like um you know and just totally like be over dominated I know that's the narrative of the match but like Berkovich is quite clearly better than Fujinami all of this apart from strikes he's just got this massive hole in his game and you've uh, a lot of other maybe a bit more moody wrestlers are maybe going nah do I do that like so I mean like and yeah maybe... absolutely like like who's who is Vladimir Berkovich to the crowd yeah, like, exactly. he's, he's, he's like, maybe like the, the, the fifth or like fourth or fifth most important Russian wrestler on this show. <laughs> like, and Fujinami gives him a lot. Like, um, it's, 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 it's really, I mean, he, yeah, he, he, he taps Berkovich out to an armbar in the end. Um, but like, it's, it's, yeah, it's certainly not a squash. Like he, um, this is basically like, this is what I love about these matches. Cause like Berkovich is a guy I've, I've seen his stuff in, uh, FI, which we'll, um, we'll talk about, um, uh, their use of these uh, these athletes uh, in in the next episode, but like I, I never found him that interesting in uh, UWFI compared with uh, some of his compatriots. But I fucking loved him here; it was so good. He really was, and it was such a great wee starter um, for this, where it's just like you get this five four or five minute match, and you just get people getting dropped in their heads, and then Verkovich selling uh, the like kick probably a bit too much. Uh, yeah. selling and then um yeah it's just yeah it's just it's such a it's just a consummate match where like yeah i i absolutely loved it i thought berkovich was fantastic i thought i i'd argue berkovich was probably the star of this and it, just the throws he was doing in the selling that he made that fujinami obviously had a lot to play in it but berkovich really shone for me in this Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, I was just like, this really made me want to watch more Vladimir Berkovich because like, yeah, I, I, obviously I know how good Fujinami is, but like, he's like, yeah, fuck, I need to find all the uh, Berkovich footage I possibly can. Like, that was them. Um, Would uh, you like that, a tip? Uh, yeah, yes. Um, Learn the Cyrillic alphabet. Yeah, actually, that is a... That's how I search for like, all their matches now. I just look for a search for uh, Vladimir Berkovich and Cyrillic because like, I, because obviously... Even it's Transvojim and Yazavid David, all that. I have learned the Cyrillic alphabet, and yeah, when I want to want to watch them, I actually just stick it in Cyrillic if I need to find any sort of Russian or Russian adjacent sport or or whatever. I always just search for yeah. Cyrillic. You get so much better um, results. That's well, a good, all I, the Bushido stuff is all there in Cyrillic, but you just oh, can't find fuck it. Is it? Oh, yeah. Please. I feel like I feel like if I can learn Hiragana and Katakana, I can probably I can probably manage Cyrillic. Yeah, if I can I, learn I, Cyrillic, I you that. absolutely can. It's, it's, <laughs> 
<laughs> Excellent. So um, that was the first of the quarterfinal matches in the tournament that we are covering on this episode. The second one um, happened uh, late. Boy. Oh, so yeah, yeah. So there was a whole there was a whole debate in the in the uh, the podcast group chat about whether we would do this because um, uh, the the Russian wrestler involved uh, wins this match and goes on to the semis. I was like, well, we like do we need to do two matches uh, with him involved? Can we just do the one and then like you watch the match? It's like we are absolutely doing this. This is incredible. So this is. Um, for the how the fuck are these guys both under 30 years old openweight championship uh, <laughs> uh victor zangiev of the soviet union against buzz sawyer of the united states of america so let's talk about buzz sawyer before we get under zangiev all right so buzz sawyer is like he looks a little bit like frank sabotka from the wire uh, <laughs> he's got so much forehead it is absolutely uh absolutely uncanny and brendan o'neill levels of, of forehead what the fuck somewhere in his attic there is a portrait of him getting younger like um this guy like where did they find him do you know the mad thing is i seem to remember so full disclosure we recorded this months ago then lost the file and just couldn't be bothered doing anything because yeah. we all hate wrestling now um <laughs> and uh i seem to remember the first time we daddy first daniel is a big fan of buzz sawyer but Buzz Sawyer has never done any of this in his career whatsoever before. He's like a sovereign. Yeah, like, he's cried. Not, he's not an amateur hero. wrestler. No, <laughs> just he's not. As one. <laughs> I I just assumed because like he's he got had a tracksuit on. He, he he seems legit. The track, yeah, the tracksuit says 1988 Olympics. Just flagrant false advertising. Um, I just assumed that like this was his thing, but he was a like southern brawler, like <laughs> like pretty much. And they've like, you like, you know what we should do with this guy? I, I as great as this match is, I'm I'm I'd almost rather we got him in his uh in his uh like gimmick he had in uh, uh America. God, I mean, can you imagine yeah. having a southern brawl in the Tokyo oh, with Victor Zangi? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of whom, we should probably talk about him. So, if if that name seems familiar to you, and you're not sure why, um, it's because um, a Street Fighter character was named after him because this guy is the most pro wrestling looking pro wrestler. Who like this was to the people behind the Street Fighter video games. This is what a pro wrestler looks like. Google Victor Zangiev. Look at his luscious mustache and balding pate and extremely hairy chest, and then um. Learned the fact that he was 28 years old at the time this this photo was taken. Like the Soviet Union is a hell of a drug. Let me uh, put it that way. But like Zangiev is like the most well known of these uh, of these Soviet grapplers to the uh, to the wider uh, well, to, well obviously to the, to the wider wrestling community. They know he's the guy who was uh, like the name of Street Fighter character off of, and he's generally reputed as being the guy who took to pro wrestling the best out of all of these out of all of these fellas because they brought over i think it was like i think nine um soviet eight, eight the red yeah, bull the, army the red yeah. bull army yeah so there's quite a few of these guys they brought over and while am- having a great amateur background uh really helps in terms of uh being a basis for um learning your skills in professional wrestling uh, it doesn't always work out like that like sometimes you get a kurt angle sometimes you, you get a jake hager um and zangier was very much towards the the kurt angle uh the kurt angle level of things just while just while we're on uh, this um i believe the last time we played a game where i tried to guess the red bull army and i think i can get seven out of the eight 
That's very impressive. So uh, let's them and see if I uh, if I can figure the other one. So we obviously got Victor Zangief. Yes. Uh, we've got Salman Hashmikov. Yes. Vladimir Berkovic. Yep. Vaka Evolyev. Yep. Timur Zalasov. Yep. Habili Viktorchev. Yes. And oh, what's, the, what's his name? First name something Sulsev. Oh God. Um, I think there's uh. There's Sulsev and. Oh. This guy's so obscure. We haven't even got any of his matches. I, like, uh, I don't, I don't like, think he has like, a cage match. I, I don't, I don't think he has a cage match. I don't think he has any matches that are like um, on tape. But he is, he is listed as part of the Red Bull Army. So safe. And there's another one. But I, again, I think he was one of those ones where they just had like one match and then. Yeah, off. yeah. The, the main ones were Zangief, Hashimikov, and Burkovich. These were the fucked ones. off to Leipzig and Salzburg. <laughs> Yeah, they they and they were the ones who ended up in uh, UWFI, as we will cover in episode uh, episode twenty five. Um, so uh, this match again, like very short, very sweet. Um, basically, like for all that uh, Buzz Sawyer is essentially cosplaying an Olympic wrestler. Um, he clearly knows his stuff because we've got some true amateur style grappling to the start, like the guys riding each other, fireman's carries, all that sweet shit. Um, Sawyer keeps trying to get Zangief's back. The ref counts one on a school schoolboy, which I really don't think was meant to be a pin spot. <laughs> I think no, that... But I did love that there was a schoolboy in this. I was like, well, of course you'd do a schoolboy if you're a wrestler. If you had that sort of position, you'd absolutely try and take them down for a schoolboy. Yeah. And it made a lot of sense. It was the most legit amateur schoolboy that I've seen in a long, long time. Yeah, I was I was gonna say like uh, you thought the throws in that match in that last match were bad. Like the first the first um, uh, flash of the violence to, to come uh, comes when Sawyer tries to belly to belly Zangiev, but it somehow goes the other way and he gets bonked on his own head. <laughs> oh, it's it's so good. Like like this this is the epitome of like cishet machismo of oh, just men doing men things. Like the start, they just go nose to nose. Like full on butting heads, like rain, like reindeer antlers, uh, try fighting over a mate. It, it was amazing, and I was like, man, I, I just wish all wrestling was like this. I just wish all wrestling just started with them going nose to nose and just shoving each other on the shoulders. It's just the best. Oh yeah, there's proper like there's proper aggro in this uh, in this Arty, match. Arty. Like, the the Berkovich Fujin Army one was like metal like quite respectfully, but like um I mean Sawyer is like an an ordinary bastard, and they're like they're clearly trying to set Zangiev up as as a heel in the in the purest uh, in the purest sense. Um I mean uh there's a I mean Zangiev's like um they really put over his throw defense. Uh, in this, because like you've got the one where like Sora tries to uh, give him the the suplex and it does not go so well, and then Zangief blocks a belly to belly and then hits a massive one of his own. And this is not the sort of messy throws I've talked about. This is a huge fucking overhead belly to belly on a man who is about 240 pounds. Buzz Sawyer is not a small human being. I and, think it uh, can be best described if the Scottish word um, he he it was a proper hike. Absolutely. <laughs> Like um, it's 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 fucking brilliant. And at this point, uh, Sawyer takes a powder and uh, sort of stores a little bit on the outside. And, and then comes the finish where Sawyer gets back in the ring, hits a German for two. Zangiev just gets right back up and hits his own German for three. 
it, it's so it's so amazing that he just like he sits outside, he has a wee chat, they pep him up. It yes. was it was it was absurdist comedy. And they were really <laughs> sitting there like, Come on, come on, spraying him and all that and going, you know, you could do this, you could just and he jumps in and he grabs him and gets the German and you're like, Oh fucking hell, this might work. Two point nine kick out. Crowd goes mental. He stands up going, yes, I've won. And he just gets fucking spiked. <laughs> so like funny. an absolute bastard. And it's oh amazing. I, and it, I mean, it, then Zangief gets out and immediately starts getting into it with uh, Brad Rangans, who was uh, like Sawyer's second. He's just like, what he wants more. He wants to he wants to take more fuckers out. He oh. just he literally only is only here to kick the ass of Yankee imperialist pigs. <laughs> after exactly. Oh, like I honestly... I don't joke when I say this. This is like the perfect wrestling match for me. It's all, all I ever want. I just want men being men, butting antlers, and then like throwing each other, and then some shenanigans. People outside getting pepped up because it's a legitimate combat sport, and they need <laughs> yes. pepped up and jumping in, just getting spiked, and then more fighting afterwards. Like th- this is the the perfect tv match i honestly wish that tv wrestling did the matches like this because it's just the, it is dad wrestling it's wrestling you would watch with your dad and you'd fucking love it even if you didn't like wrestling yeah because yeah, like it's 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 guys throwing big bombs and it's over quick as well there's like there's no there's no chance to get bored with a match like this because it's like it's like three minutes long <laughs> I, I wish a fucking young Tetsuya Naito was sitting in the stands taking fucking notes. Um, <laughs> oh God, like to say to say nothing of like you know, well any member of the New Japan roster you care to name. Um, so uh, I mean, so Zangief wins, moves on to the semi-finals of the tournament, and that's the next match we're going to uh, talk about. He He's is coming home. We're doing a Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> he is wrestling a man who we have uh, reviewed on the podcast on a couple of occasions and who was involved at the sharp end of the feud with UWFI and was really the standard bearer for uh, New Japan in that feud. And that is uh, Shinya Hashimoto, who had uh, beaten Ricky Choshu in the first round of the tournament, which is a hell of a, sca- a scalp, really. I mean, Choshu and Fujinami were like the the guys sort of the, the top guys other than Inoki um, in the uh, in the 80s. Choshu had fucked off to all Japan for a few years and taken some of the roster with him. And then he, like, he hadn't come back to... Um, too long before this uh, this show so he's kind of an invader in his own way Hashimoto beats him in the first round and yeah so Hashimoto was um really the Inoki surrogate in the 90s for a lot of these work shoots uh when like you know Inoki's um matches were kind of few and far between in the 90s as he was um, focusing on his political career uh, like by, by by the end of 1989 Antonio Inoki was a sitting member of uh, the lower house of the Japanese parliament so that's the other thing surrounding this show he's clearly trying to prove his mettle as a diplomat ahead of an actual imagine just walking career. into the parliament like you imagine just walking in after like winning a match at the Tokyo Dome or whatever. And so what did you do the weekend? Oh yeah, I won the, the world championship at the Tokyo Dome in front of like sixty thousand people. Um Vader. Yeah, you beat Vader. Like, what the hell? And he says, you want to talk about fucking agriculture reform? You better yeah, yeah, fish yeah. to fry. 
so that's what Inoki's doing. Um, but uh, and so Hashimoto kind of does some of these uh, fight against low Kartekas and judokas uh, in his in his stead with kind of mixed results. Some of them are good. Uh, some of them are not so good. I remember at a Rev Pro show, um, there's a, a company called uh, VAP or VAP, as I always think of it, um, which does like big ass box sets of um, stuff from various Japanese wrestlers. I've got the Misawa one, um, which Sarah bought me as a Valentine's Day uh, gift at the time when I had very little money. Uh, and I was very appreciative of that. But there was also a Hashimoto one on sale. And you kind of look at the match list. It's like, oh, like, there's loads of classic stuff. And then there's a whole disc of crap worksheets from like 1996. <laughs> um, so like... Um, uh, and and there was also tucking the gold away in one desk, eh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and there was also the feud with Nayo Agawa, who was oh. also a, a shooter. And you know, many people will tell you that Hashimoto, like that feud, really didn't do him any favors because Agawa like got the better of him on on most of the occasions, and that kind of didn't do a lot for Hashimoto's rep as the guy who could take down these shooters when there's like a shooter come in who um like keeps getting the better of him uh so he kind of had a, a, a mixed time of things in the work shoots but i mean this is 1989 hashimoto is still an up-and-comer really um like he's he's clearly the, the three musketeers of hashimoto muto and chono had not really been established at the main event level at this point uh, you know hashimoto is a, is a is a relative youngster compared with choshu and fujinami et al and certainly with anoki and um so this is really a, a showcase for him to show he's an up-and-comer and, and uh, some guy you can put in a main event slot so while the uh the match was uh, the previous one against sawyer was quite short and uh kind of gave us a little taste of what zangiev could do as a pro wrestler fuck me does this match like really show what he can do Oh Jesus my goodness! Christ. It's 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 incredible. Like it's got to be in like the top ten matches under ten minutes for me. Like oh ab- absolutely! Like it's amazing. Like Hashimoto really shows why he is the man in terms of going up against these uh, against these guys. And like Zangiev, my fucking god! This is his second ever match. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's like certainly it, like you can count them on one hand. I think he maybe had a a couple on house shows leading up to this but like yeah to all intents and purposes Zangiev is a beginner and he's doing things like he's 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 like picking the leg and like doing stfs uh like again he he, he brings out the overhead belly to belly the overhead belly to belly are shina hashimoto is a big big dude he is a like, big boy the best part of 300 pounds like he is a fat man and like Zangiev fucks him over his head like he's absolutely nothing. Is it not only that, right? Um because Hashimoto is big, the first one you're like, My god, that's impressive. And Hashimoto is like, Fucking hell, he can throw me over. So he starts fighting it. He's start like the struggle he starts like slapping him and stuff like that to get him away and getting rid of the arms so he doesn't get thrown in because he knows how lethal it is. And then Zangiev does it again anyway. And it's like Obviously, yeah, yeah. like it, 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 these matches, I think the thing I love about these matches so much is there is a sense of struggle that you just don't get in wrestling anymore. Like in terms of with the throws and the submissions and stuff like that, that you just don't get in uh, with a lot of wrestling now. And it's so compacted that literally anything could be a, a, a deadly kill move. Um, in this. Oh, yeah, that, that's one of the, uh, the great things about this style, actually. I mean, yeah, Hashimoto does actually... Um, uh, fight off the first attempt at the belly to belly, and I, I kind of like to think that he scouted the uh, the first match, and that's the story that they're uh, they're going for. And, uh, and then Zangiev gets Hashimoto in a head scissors, and then the camera cuts to the outside, and you see some Brezhnev looking fucker on uh, like uh, who I assume is the Soviet coach. 
Um, I'm assuming it's their actual coach. They've not just got, you know, like the guy who comes out with Nikolai Volkov at Heroes of Wrestling. Who's yeah. just some guy they've put in a Red Army uniform. He looks <laughs> like he owns a restaurant that was in Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares. I'm not going to lie. He absolutely does. <laughs> yeah, and it is an Italian restaurant for some reason. And we know those are always the best episodes. Um, and uh, like um, the, the brutality of... Um, what Hashimoto is trying like at this point he just decides to start doing some high kicks right to Zangiev's throat <laughs> um, oh god like it's uh it's uh it, it, it it's so good like and um uh Zangiev right really shows his attitude in this match like he's like you know Berkovich is like a, a sort of like kind of an Ivan Drago if like if that's not too stereotypical but like a kind of sort of uh you know uh, stoic Iron Man. Like Zangiev's like acting and his selling are incredible. Like he he, he hits the fisherman suplex. Um where he picks the third attempt at the kick, he does the fisherman suplex. And in the previous match he followed up with a headlock, but in this one he just stands there lording it over Hashimoto. <laughs> and like the the bit at which uh he he puts an Americana on uh, Hashimoto and his facial expressions are like the kind of John Cena kind where he's got the STF locked in and like Cena looks like he's like hurting more than his opponent who he's actually doing the move to. <laughs> like Zangiev is um he does that and then like as if that wasn't enough, Hashimoto gets in their head scissors and Zangiev does a kind of he can't I I genuinely don't know how to describe this, but like he kind of does like whoop 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 whoop, 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 whoop just like in a circle. He like, really does skids around Hashimoto's body and then he does a flipping kip up out of it, which I'm pretty sure he wasn't doing in the World Freestyle Wrestling Championships. I don't I, 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 like I don't think I've ever seen anyone do that before. He, literally, you know how we always talk about how like Joshi people always like invent moves. Yeah. Like Sangiev's literally doing it in like match three of his career. He's just pulling <laughs> out shit from like nineteen fifties France cat, yeah, cat like... wrestling. And even then they're like, Wow, like I, I, I don't know, it's just it is it's insane. It's just insane. Yeah, I'm I, I always I always just think of it as the Zangiev spot because yeah, like you, I've never seen anyone else uh do it. At this point, he hoists Hashimoto off, but hits a kind of an air raid crash uh, type thing, I would imagine. Hashimoto takes a powder, as you would, <laughs> gets back in the ring and just spits in and around Zangiev's uh, vicinity, uh, vicinity. And then Zangiev fixes him with an expression like he's going to have him buried in the Kazakh desert. <laughs> like a, a palpably terrifying man. It's just so, so good. Like, it, it's... Like... Yeah. The, yeah, it's just it's just his reaction, and you can see a little bit of a smile where he's kind of like, "I'm glad you did that. I'm glad that you did that because I will fuck you up." But <laughs> it's so weird, right? Because like Zangiev is such a, such a riddle because you look at him, he's got more body hair than Tommy Sheridan. He looks <laughs> about fifty five years old. In fact, he's like half that age. Like he looks like he could murder you, like with a with a fucking death stare without even touching you and then but as well as that he's like doing star jumps and stuff and like smiling and just kind of lording it over people and stuff like that and i'm like he's clearly loving this like it's so it's so bizarre like but oh yeah he's got like amazing marinsky theater level acting as well like this guy does this guy is the whole package and he had like 60 matches in his career (laughs) 
Like, in terms of, like, gold-to-match ratio, like, this guy, fucking hell. There's also the bit of which uh, he gets the clinch and Hashimoto tries to form his way out and he still gets suplexed. And then, like, um, the finish is really good as well. Like, it kind of had something of a piece with the one from the Fujinami Berkovic match in that, like, Hashimoto beats um, beats Zangiev with the power of pro wrestling, which is so good. Like, he does the uh, the spinning wheel kick, which was kind of a, a signature of... Uh, of Hashimoto's and then one Zangiev is on the ground he uh, locks in the figure uh, Hashimoto locks in the figure four leg lock so shades of 1996 and Muto versus Takada which you will uh, find us covering uh, way back on in episode seven um, so like you know he's trying to beat the amateur grappler with a hold which is very much associated with pro wrestling and very famous as a kill move in pro wrestling going right back to the time the destroyer tapped out Ricky Dozan with it in 1963 so like it's a really over uh, hold but specifically a pro wrestling hold and uh, my god Zangiev selling in this like, oh god yeah hold. He's not just laying there, um, laying there comatose. Like when he taps out, he looks like he has let his whole country down. Yeah, and he knows it. Yeah, yes. Like it's it's incredible. Like the amount in which Zangiev conveys to you what is at stake. Like he is there to, uh, you know, nothing less than the fortunes of the Soviet Union are riding on him winning this match. <laughs> and like it's 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 like just the raw emotion of this. Like it's uh, just an all time of a performance in this like you know, little eight minute match. Uh, Victor Zangiev like takes you on an emotional journey. And I was I like Hash. Moto's incredible as well like um in this just being the all right you've you've wrestled a big bastard already tonight but have you wrestled a really big bastard so this is the last match in the in the iwgp tournament um that we're uh, covering so hashimoto would go on to lose to big van vader in the tournament final featuring an all-timer of a shitty special ref performance from a 73 year old luthez the man like, should be in care um, yes it's amazing it's, it's amazing that this is 11 years before his arguable wrestling peak. That time he sued uh, Mark Madden for saying he beat women on uh, WCW Nitro. <laughs> Fucking hell. I, I've generally never heard of this. Oh, and right, right. So it didn't tu- it didn't turn up in Luthez's autobiography, uh, which is basically where I get most of my knowledge of his uh, uh, career from. By the way, before you give us the Mark Madden story, just uh, just to note, we we're talking about how decrepit um, uh, Luthez uh, looks like uh, he, he basically completely fucks the finish and can like barely count. Three. <laughs> he would wrestle a match against Masahiro Chono the next year. So just, uh, just of course he that would. Uh, of course he on. would. Right. Now, this kind of ties in well with what I, uh, what I was going to mention. So thank you for the plug here, the, the, the segue here. But um, I used to be a member of um, a forum called Wrestling Classics Forum, which is literally oh. just talking about old school wrestling, old territories wrestling. All right. Um, but not in a weird Jim Cornette way. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> it's good fun. Right. So. Um, with uh, on on this wrestling classic forum now this forum goes back like 30 years so and all the archives are still there from like 30 years ago and there is a thread of mark madden on nitro made a glib joke about someone i'm going to say it's probably oklahoma against medusa if i had to take a punt i would say it was oklahoma versus medusa where he talked about oklahoma was putting heat on medusa and obviously beating her off in the match and he made a glib joke about how uh, about Lufez, how he loves beating women, right? On like national television, like full on WCW Nitro national television. And then the next day, 
on the Wrestling Classics forum, Lou Fess and his wife posted a joint message <laughs> saying, <laughs> I am not fucking having this. Fuck you, Mark Madden. A, you're a shit commentator. B, I will be seeing you into the ground. <laughs> um, absolutely. And then everyone, of course, because this is a forum of uh, people who love the old territories wrestling, just piled in and go, yeah, fuck Mark Madden. It's just this amazing pile on. Oh, and in- Event, I think he had to do like a he had to do like a really um, weathering apology on his radio show and on Nitro. He had to like do a full on sun front page apology on Nitro the week after because of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, like that. I mean, like if you read his bio, autobiography, Luthez was certainly not a fan of women's wrestling, but like there's a bit of a difference between that and beating women. Like that. Yeah. Fuck. Fucking, I, I, I have to say, like, I'm absolutely not surprised that Mark Madden did this. It's also quite <laughs> funny to note, as, um, as our good friend Patrick W. Reed often notes, uh, when, and this seems, this is, I don't know if it's the pandemic has done things to people's brains, but this discourse seems to happen about twice a week. And like, oh, imagine if the IWC was around uh, at, uh, you know, insert um, famous wrestling moment here. And Pat's always like, Luthers used to post on uh, Wrestling Classics for them. Yeah, like it. Yeah, it was, it was insane. Like Luthes yeah. was in the IWC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a um, he had a banner of uh, all the wrestling shows that he'd been to. Uh, it span. Uh, it took up so much code that it crashed the site. Um, <laughs> um, and he always just talked about how Century ninety four is the best. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, what did you think about your series of Ricky Doza? Yeah, four and three quarter stars. <laughs> it wasn't for the sixties of ninety four, was it? Um, that sort of matter. But, um, oh, but moving on from that, also on the Wrestling Classics Forum, the Wrestling Classics Forum was also where I used to do my EFED, George. Yeah, this is as good a time as any to talk about it. I think so. <laughs> I have present, I have prepared Hashimakov and Zangief EFED moments countdown. Yes, you should probably explain the context as to why you were e-fedding with with said said Soviet gentleman. So I am a virgin, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, I have had sexual intercourse at least once in my life. I should say that on record, even though I am on a wrestling podcast. Um, But yes, so uh, many, many, many years ago, like a good decade ago, um, I was involved in an e-fed on the Wrestling Classics Forum. And you got to pick a territory, so you all picked a territory, and it was like 20 years, in the, or 20, 15, 20 years in the past, and they just gave you a roster of everybody who was in cage match, who was who started in that year or whatever, and you picked a 20, 30 man roster, and you had a territory, and you kind of would have local ones, so people had like Texas and California and Canada yeah. and stuff like that, and I turned up, and I was like, nobody's done Europe, wouldn't it be quite good if I'd done Europe? Now this was set in like 1993, 94. So there was a no UK wrestling in 1993-94 whatsoever outside of Bill Nakano and Aberdeen and Hull um, <laughs> yeah. and like giant haystacks nearly dying um, on wrestle. Um, that that was like so. But I was like, I'll just go. I'll just go to the UK um, and decided that there was there wasn't enough people in the UK at the time to kind of make that had any information that I could make a competent sort of thing of. So I, I decided to make it a Europe-wide one. So I literally was like, oh, can I have the UK territory? And then expanded and just, like, took the whole of Europe. <laughs> and this done shows <laughs> all over, like, Germany, Russia, all that. But but the, the, the stars, the unequivocal stars of my EFED were Hashmakov and Zangiev, who I made into an unbeatable team, as in, I think they lost three times in, like, four years. 
like that level of just imperiousness <laughs> of just they were the best and they were literally just a rip-off of the steiners because of course they were they were just a rip-off of the steiners but more hard-edged um and more like getting into like brawls and scraps and stuff like that so um it started so the, the way they, they burst onto the scene as um in like some vignettes in a russian like uh, barn training in the winter and stuff like that and then their, their first match i uh, put them in a six-man tag team with nikita koloff right, of course nikita koloff hash mccov and zangi versus van hammer doc dean and danny boy collins <laughs> in a match right now this match so it started out as all good wrestling uh, for, uh, promotions start off um, recording in a TV studio. And I thought, wouldn't it be really funny if they just brawled and just kept brawling and just left the studio? And I thought, that, that's a great idea. So I had Van Hammer and Nikita Koloff who were in a blood feud. I remember Nikita Koloff um, uh, abandoned his family on Christmas Day to record a video message for the show next <laughs> week. That sort of power. And they had a blood feud and um, they literally had a match where the six-man tag started and Hammer and Koloff literally just started brawling with each other and immediately left the ring and just immediately went away and just brawled all over the arena. And the Hash McCobb and Zang even like their third match were like, what? what what, the fuck is actually going on? And like the two, t- the two teams that were in the ring were kind of like, what, what do we do? And we're just sitting there having like a cool, cool chat of going, our, our guys have went off. Are we, are we just going to wrestle or do we go chase them or whatever? And they had a wee conversation. All the while, Hammer and Koloff break out of the arena, out of the recording studio, through a fire door. <laughs> it set off a fire alarm in the ITV studios. <laughs> and then it basically, the, the, the culmination of this match. I just imagine them rolling through a recording of Barry Moore Strike It Lucky. Well, well, <laughs> well, George. Oh, God. Not quite, but it set off the fire alarm and caused them to evacuate the studios where there was a recording of Strike at Lucky going on next door. <laughs> so they all come out as they're brawling and a confused Michael Barrymore rushed into the scene asking what's going on and who set off the fire alarm. And they're just like, <laughs> Nikita Koloff and Van Hammer running and start brawling in front of them and like push them over and stuff like that. And Michael, then like... Michael Barrymore would have loved FMW, like, you know, with all those people getting hurt around pools. <laughs> that is so getting cut. Um... <laughs> But yeah, and it ended with like 20 policemen turning up, like Bobby's on the beat, turning up at ITV Studios to like separate them as like absolute carnage that the fire brigade turn up to try and turn the fire alarm off. And Hashim McCobb and Zangief are still just wrestling Danny Boy Collins in a ring by themselves. Um, it was very bizarre. So that was, that, was, that was the way they burst onto the scene. And I'm sure, you, as you can imagine, they were really set up then at that point. Then they defeated the Steiners at um, Toshino Airfields in Moscow. <laughs> um, it was like, um, I can't remember why I chose that day. Oh, it was just literally, I wanted to have them fight someone in Russia. So I picked like a 100,000 seater arena and just had them like, wrestle them in like this insane concert sort of, sort of thing with like a flyover from like the Soviet Air Force and things. And um, uh, they, they defeated the Steiners there. Um, and then we had a run... I mean, they lost the titles to the team of Dave Taylor and Doug Williams um, oh, in like, 1996. Oh. Yeah, I was like, that's an amazing team. So Dave Taylor and Doug Williams, and they, and they went on this redemption arc where they had to fight um, Gary Albright. So Gary Albright turned oh, up. Oh, yes, please. Gary Albright turned up, and I had a, a Russian singles title, and he only fought this in Russia, and he fought everyone in rings. So he like, defeated Volkan, he defeated... 
Grom Zaza, um, <laughs> Igor Vovchansh in the Ukrainian freight train, all of them squashed by Gary Albright in like a reverse Rusev sort of thing, where he would come up with the American flag and just rule over them. And then um, he faced Salman Hashmikov and made him tap out, and he never tapped out. And then Sangif went up and he passed out. And then they had a match on an airship, um, and St- oh no, uh, yeah, on a, on a battleship in the harbour of St Petersburg. Um, and uh, Gary Albright get defeated in front of a like literally, it was just Yokozuna and Lex Luger. It was literally just a done Lex and Yoko on the battleship, <laughs> uh, but with uh, Zangief and Albright. And then he won the Russian title, and um, Boris Yeltsin was there. <laughs> Pissed out of his mind. And he did the Paul Heyman at one night stand where he ran in and counted the three to win Zangief the title by <laughs> presidential decree. I was like, that's Shit. amazing. And then, um, uh, the, the, then it built up to them defeating um, to win back the tag titles. And they had a run where there was about four weeks where I was like, why don't they just fight fat lads? Like really, like, yeah. And I was like, no, I just have fatter and fatter lads each week. Like just so, like I think it was a three-week run where they faced. Have you ever heard of the Colossal Kongs? I have not actually. They are wide, wide boys, shall we say? <laughs> um, they they wear gimp masks, but they're wide, wide boys, right? And the natural disasters. Oh yes. And men on a mission in the space <laughs> of three weeks. They defeated them all and they squashed them. And it was literally just can Hashimikov water wheel drop Mabel. That was the whole thing of the match. <laughs> and I put them over every team, um, every single team, Road Warriors, Steiners, the lot. But um, yeah, so, so many memories. Um, it, it, it's just the best. But I, I think my favourite match is when they beat the Nasty Boys in a dumpster match. <laughs> which was just carnage but yes um that's amazing huge huge memories yeah uh, it's fantastic and all but it was so much fun and then um, but much like uh, you may be shocked to hear this seeing as you listen to this podcast but i didn't really post that much um and they get sick <laughs> of it because they're just really inactive all the time and i get chucked out but um the memories will always live but once at once hash mccobb and sangeev retired it was done i was like oh, i can't i can't ever match this um and yeah, but I, and I, and I just had to let it go at that point. But I'd love to just do a, a reunion, a comeback for Zangief and Hashmikov. Um, like, I mean, just turn up. I mean, I, I it's also like literally um, uh, Farage's fucked face um, uh, well, late off Twitter. Not not, not anymore because he got... R.I.P. Uh, to a real one. Oh, R.I.P. to a real one. He got permabanned for all that stuff he did. Um, but uh, who, who uh, writes the uh, the Real Politics spin-off Gapecast. Um, I'm sure he puts in references like Just For Us because there is, a, there is an episode in which um, uh, uh, in which the, the fictionalised version of Mike Gapes in uh, said uh, audio drama um, who is very paranoid about Russian interference in elections um, basically murders a couple of Russian philanthropists in a in a Las Vegas Hotel. <laughs> well, if, if it isn't Sangiev and Hashimikov, the the notorious St. Petersburg trolls. <laughs> and it's just like, that is literally a reference for like three people uh, that Triple F knows. And like, we are two of them. <laughs> so like, I would like to uh, salute him for that. And I know he listens to this podcast as well. So uh, as you shout out. So the, the, the next match is, uh, so this is, you remember what I talked about uh, a 
one of the Soviet wrestlers wrestling a guy who really wasn't shoot star. Well, get ready for a load of that. So this is Waka Evaloev, who is taking some time out from his blitzball career and being racist against the Albed to fight noted Burger King aficionado Masa Saito. Uh, now, Saito was actually an Olympian, um, believe it or not. He uh, represented Japan in 1964 <laughs> at the first... And at the time of recording, still the only Tokyo Olympics. Um, however, he very much does he not want that style got of it. <laughs> He still got it. Yeah. Um, so Saito is uh, he's on the downturn of his career, but he is not too far removed from his main event feud in uh, 1987 with Anoki, which was really the main program that year, including the legendary slash notorious Gamryujima Island deathmatch. Uh, and like that, and also um, he would wrestle Inoki in the decision match to crown the inaugural IWGP Heavyweight Champion. Um, now, as for Waka Eveloev, um, David, is this the guy you were telling me about who got into politics? I believe it may be him. Yes, uh, or to give his uh, full name, Waka Waka, this time for Africa, Eveloev. <laughs> I was going to do the whole verse, and I thought maybe not. Uh, no. Sir, <laughs> like, so I, I represent the estate of Shakira. <laughs> and she's not been paying her taxes, so we very much do need the lawsuit money. But um, her hips don't lie, but her tax receipts certainly very <laughs> much fucking do. Uh, fucking hell. Yeah, he, so he went into... He's like an advisor to the president of Ingushetia. Uh, yeah. I, I, think, I, think, I think that's right. So, like, he... Um, so I, 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 I'm not going to I'm not going to look this up, but um, I would assume the president of Ingushetia is quite like the his equivalents in Chechnya and Dagestan, where he is sort of a a tame regional strongman who is loyal to Putin and to the United Russia Party, but is essentially left to their own devices to get on with uh, ruling in a rather authoritarian manner. An autonomous uh, oblast, as usual, to refer yeah. to as yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, 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 you'd be right. It's sort of, you know, um, a glorified counsellor. Everloev uh, did go into politics after. So um, he he doesn't even have a cage match profile. So I assume he didn't have too many more wrestling matches um, after this show. So he is the guy. They're busy decided... getting the bins pulled out in time. <laughs> he was the uh, pointy, pointy at dog muck in the local paper. <laughs> Um, so uh, and, if, and, if you if you do have any clippings from the Ingushetia Gazette of Bakerville here looking at um, Dogbuck, uh, please send them in at your podcast. <laughs> putting putting arm bars on school children who have non-regulation haircuts and have been sent home from school. <laughs> okay, I think we've hit all the touchstones of UK local news and into the match. So um, the story of this match is Evaloev is a actor star wrestler. Masa Saito is a crazy guy who uh, does loads of headbutts and stuff. Um, uh, so uh, I mean, he, he he does a bit of his uh, sort of amateur stuff. Like he gets Evaloev back early, but uh, Evaloev does this really cool um, rolling armbar when they're back to standing, and uh, Saito is basically doing like sort of half crab STF. Um, uh, attempts Fujiwara armbars are kind of like holds which are they're not really shoot holds they're kind of um uh associated with the pro wrestling like the figure four although i did want to see a, a video of a guy tapping out to a boston crab in an mma fight <laughs> like they all count they do all count you gotta be a real dingus to let yourself uh, <laughs> I, I did I did ask a mate who's big into his UFC actually like is the figure four a legit hold? Uh, 
and he was like yeah it would hurt if you did it properly it would hurt someone if you put it on them uh, but obviously like you're never going to be able to apply it to someone in a real fight and i was like and you know that um you like does it does it reverse the pressure if you turn it over like it does in the Louis? Because that sounds like bullshit. Like, does that actually is that actually the case? And he was like, yeah, I think it actually is. So, like, I, I would like to um, issue an apology to um, uh, uh, possibly by the time this episode airs, the late Ric Flair. Um, so, <laughs> Even if I put this in tomorrow, I'm still very happy. He's very much an injury time. He's playing it into the corner of my Getting the ball boys to do a bit of time wasting, and uh, and to act as his body doubles if the alimony people come around. Um, so um, yeah, uh, it's um, it's a weird one this because um, like this match is I think less interesting than the Berkovic and Zangiev matches, and that's really because um, Evelov works much closer to a standard pro style. It's kind of weird, like you would think that, like. Um, the match would seem strange because Saito is um, is being Masa Saito, but actually Evelov is doing like is like judo takedowns and um, and stuff like this. But um, uh, it's it's kind of quite standard. Uh, it gets it gets much better when uh, Saito dispenses with the mat wrestling and starts just doing like knees and headbutts. That's that's really good. And Macavilia uh, uh, probably wouldn't agree with your assessment of it being it being quite good. So, yeah, I don't know if there's some miscommunication or, or something like that, but they, they start shoving each other, a little bit of afters, and then uh, Saito hits a couple of lariats, a backdrop, and, and this is the point at which we get the knees of the clinch and the headbutts, and then uh, uh, Evaloa fires up and uh, just a sort of flying head scissors, which, like, certainly not something you would expect uh, one of these guys to do, and then uh, taps out Saito with the armbar to, like, this really big reaction, and it kind of... Uh, makes me curious as to why they didn't do more with this guy because uh, he only had a handful of matches and like even like you know, in 1989 like say Saito is getting on in years but like to to uh, beat him by submission is a big scalp you know like I say he's only a couple of years removed from being like one of the top two guys in the company um, so um, it, it's quite a big it's quite a big uh, win for Avaloev but yeah I'm, I don't know if he like, did, didn't want to do wrestling anymore or whether they'd only contracted him for the uh, Red Bull Army angle but like he didn't fetch up anywhere else in like UWFI or rings so I don't know what the deal was but yeah I didn't really rate this as much as the uh, as much as the other match I mean Saito is, is fun enough um, but like um, maybe not in this kind of environment it wasn't like one of those edifying clashes of styles that you sometimes uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. provide many magic moments in the way that you know for all his faults joey janela can book a a real what the fuck is this even going to look like dream match of his uh, masato tanaka versus la park or um uh valta versus uh quebec pa you know this didn't, didn't kind of have that essence to it yeah like, i think this is the most to type match where you could probably predict what was going to happen in this match like you could probably write this match yourself and i don't think it'd be too much to you but like oh you would have thought of that happening um whereas um, the other ones obviously had a bit more variation, a bit more of a, a different structure to them. So no, I, I I did enjoy it, but yeah, I think it was very much the probably my least favourite of the six. But um, yeah, I'd say so too. Um, the the next match, there's an argument to say that this next match is my favourite of the six for like <laughs> a very specific reason. So this is another uh usa versus ussr battle uh, this so this isn't part of the uh, title tournament this is just a special exhibition match 
uh, and they've got all the pomp and pageantry for this. We've got girls in kimonos carrying the uh, the US and the Soviet uh, the Soviet flags. So the uh, representative of the Soviet Union in this match is um, uh, a man David has mentioned earlier in the episode, Salman Hashmikov. Now, out of all of the uh, amateur wrestlers that were brought in for this angle, Hashmikov is the guy who has the the best legit pedigree he is a four-time world champion in in amateur wrestling so this is like one of the top guys in the discipline um and uh he was in terms of kayfabe like positioned as the most dangerous member of the red bull army as you would expect in keeping with his uh his great amateur credentials his opponent in this is Bam Bam Bigelow. Um, so, Amateur ace. Bam Bam <laughs> yeah, Bigelow. absolutely. At the time, the tag partner of uh, Big Van Vader. So um, Bam Bam Bigelow, if you, you, he might be a name you'd be familiar with from his runs in WWF, WCW and ECW. He also had a pretty decent uh, career in uh, in Japan. It was a, a fairly big deal in New Japan uh, at this time. Uh, he's a puzzling choice um, for uh, this match, but it becomes genius in a way that i think is going to become apparent once i give you the very very quick rundown of what was involved in this match so bigelow as is his wand immediately starts mouthing off before the bell uh, opens with a uh, a big drop kick with hashmikov bumps for and kind of looks nonplussed by as he does with the clubbing blows to the back that uh, bigelow then uh then does um for all the people that say hashimikov never really learned to sell um i think actually some of that is part of his appeal he, he very much looks like a fish out of water but he is uh obviously a killer and uh he kind of he kind of shrugs off a lot of the uh a lot of the offense that uh that he uh that happens to him uh, in this and um and other matches um and uh bigelow says he's easy uh, which very soon become famous last words um, after Hashimikov picks Bigelow's leg and Bigelow is an Enzigiri, um, which is uh, which is at this point I'm thinking this is a fucking weird choice to uh, to stick him in the match with Hashimikov. Bigelow does uh, the eye rake and some clubs in the corner, so like classic heel offense. And at this point, Hashimikov shoves him back, picks him up over his shoulder, and hits the water wheel drop for three. That is the match. It is just over two minutes long. It yeah. is amazing. Um, it is. Like, it is incredible. You know, the reason the reason being is because um, this does so much for Hashmikov because and putting him with Bigelow, though it may seem like a, a gigantic clash of stars, and indeed it was, uh, does more to put over Hashmikov than if he had been against there's someone like Buzz Sawyer or Vader who are guys who even though they don't have the amateur credentials I mean Buzz Sawyer trying to fucking pretend that he does but um they don't have the amateur credentials but they they are presented as combat athletes you know like hard bastards who can fuck you up uh Bigelow could not be more pro wrestling with his head tattoo and his Guy Fieri gear um like you know this is a guy this is a guy from the WWF isn't it like the apotheosis of American professional wrestling, and Hashimikov murks him with one move. Yeah, exactly. It's just like it is because it is literally one move. He gets squashed for sort of like the ninety seconds before it. Bam, bam, because literally Hashimikov puts out a handshake. Bam, bam, just highly rattles him with an enziguri, and then just beats him up. And then Hashimikov just goes, "No, fuck this!" Shoves him away, and the crowd goes insane when he lifts him up. They're like, "No fucking way! Are you doing this?" And then he just planks him with a water wheel drop. Yeah, Bigelow was like mental. Bigelow was like three hundred and fifty pounds. 
So this yeah. is an even bigger ask than doing something similar to Shinya Hashimoto. Like Bigelow is one of the largest men on the roster, one of the largest men in professional wrestling. And Hashimikov picks him up like he's fucking nothing. Like, it's not like he's fucking Jungle Boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, like, it's, um, yeah, it's, I mean, unlike, I, I mean, you, you're a big fan of the water wheel drop as a, because it is so good and it is, as far as I, as far as I know, it's an amateur technique. Like, it's, it's just one that you wouldn't really be able to pull off very often and I think would pretty much win you the, uh, the match as long as you don't get, uh, you don't get pinned at any point. Uh, under the point system like and like i have seen it done i've seen a fucking shoot german in an amateur <laughs> amateur uh, wrestling match before that was pretty scary um but yeah yeah it's brilliant he's he is like he's the world amateur wrestling champion he's got an amateur wrestling technique that is so powerful it can put down a 350 pound man for for the three count just by itself not with any other moves done to him literally just that yeah um, he is literally one punch man <laughs> He, he he actually is. Uh, it's just it, it's kind of that thing where you go because I mean, like later on, like Salman Hashmikov will go on to become IWGP champion. Oh yeah, he would. Be like you're like, well, how how the fuck does that work? Like you know, he's not. He surely Zangief would be the thing, and you're like, surely the fans would buy that. They absolutely would because it's just a case of you can be anyone for what real drop doesn't matter who it is. Just oh, yeah. what real drop is done. Uh, there is actually a story behind uh, exactly why Hashimikov won the IWGP title. Um, now, I, 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 I've, I've not had this like said to me. This is a hundred percent verifiable fact, but I have heard this story from a lot of uh, sources. But basically, so the story goes, um, Hashimikov wasn't meant to win the belt, but the next big show they wanted him to go over Steve Williams who at the uh, mostly known for his all Japan work, but at the time was on the New Japan roster and a guy of, uh, you know, an impeccable amateur um, uh, background to the extent that the 250 pound weight limit in uh, NCAA wrestling is because that was what Steve Williams weighed. And they reckon that was the, the liminal point between you are a, a great athlete and you are just really big and difficult to chuck around. <laughs> so, yeah, a guy with a, a great pedigree, but um, uh, Dr. Death refused to do the job to uh, Hashmikov. So Vader said, I'll job to him. And then uh, and then they said, but you're the champion. And Vader was like, and and uh, <laughs> and this uh, this being willing to put over uh, younger talent was uh, something that uh, Vader would carry on through the to the end of his career. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, and uh, Hashimikov had the belt for a month, uh, lost it back to uh, lost it. Uh, we lost it to Choshu a month after that. Who, uh, yeah, who then lost it back to Vader. So that kind of, um, uh, I, I guess provides a bit of, uh, a bit of evidence to suggest that, um, you know, Vader wasn't meant to lose the belt at all because they got it back onto him, um, you know, fairly sharpish. But yeah, Hashimikov is to date the only, um, IWGP champion from Russia. Um, and, uh, like one of the first men to win the belt as well. But yeah, as, uh, like my understanding is that he kind of was never meant to do that, but it is still, it was still a great feather in his cap and, um, one of the, I don't know if he's the only man to have been a world champion in amateur and professional uh, wrestling, but there can't be many, surely. No, no, surely not. But um, I, I do say that the, probably the biggest tragedy um, of New Japan in 2021, apart from literally all of it, is <laughs> um, the besmirching of the legacy of the IWGP title where they turn it into... Yes. So, and I'm not joking when I say this. I used to look forward every year 
Well, every time there was an IWGP title match, my favourite bit of IWGP title matches was they would do the do, 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 and they'd have like the montage of every IWGP champion, and Bob Sapp, Scott Norton, all the big ones, and um, and Salman Hashmikov was always there, like twenty one years on or thirty one years on, he was he was still there, just being shown, and then they just fucking patched that. So that's Salman Hashnikov lost to the mist of time now. Cheers. Yeah, because um, like, because no, no would do the fanfare now, and it and it's great because you can you can see all the people that uh, they've had the belt on. It's like, oh yeah, fuck, they did make Eddie Edwards the champion. But like that that used to be the similar thing in New Japan where you have you know Inoki, Chono, Choshu, Fujinami, Tanahashi, Nakamura, etc. Et and then there's the odd one in there where it's like, oh yeah, they did put the belt on Bob Sapp. It's like, what the fuck were they thinking when they put it on Tadao Yasuda? Um, and and Hashimikov was uh, was always there as well. And yeah, yeah, it is kind of shit that they got rid. I, I know they've. I mean, it's kind of a symptom of a much bigger stupid decision in that they ditched the history of the IWGP Heavyweight Championship to make a new one, uh, which is just just a ridiculous decision on every single level, really. Um, we're not here to talk about new 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 Japan. It's bollocks. Nobody cares about it. Let's get yeah, back we're here to, to talk what, about old new Japan. Um, and specifically, uh, Mr. Antonio Inoki. Who, this is uh, real strong style. This is this is oh this is, absolutely strong style incarnate. Yeah, I mean, it literally is. Um, but, <laughs> uh, so um, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't have uh, New Japan's uh, first you know New Japan's first Tokyo Dome show, the first wrestling show to be at the Tokyo Dome ever without Inoki in the main event. Um, you know, the the founder of the company, the top guy, uh, and soon to be an MP. So um, uh, what Inoki had planned for this was uh so he's not the iwgp heavyweight champion which he had been in 1987 but he does have another belt to his arsenal and that belt is the wwf world martial arts championship so what the hell was that you might uh, you might ask well can you, sorry can you can you hear the prestige just dripping in japan <laughs> we'll just have a fan of that and it's just in okay <laughs> <laughs> just he's on screen for five minutes um so i don't yeah. he would fucking do that though he would oh yeah yeah he, 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 he absolutely would uh so this title was established in 1978 uh to be defended in work shoots and it was uh the wf world martial arts championship because that was who had sanctioned the new japan belts as we said earlier in the episode before the uh fictional governing body the international wrestling grand prix was founded which is how the iwgp belts uh, came about this wf world martial arts championship established in 1987 uh, inoki is currently on uh, an undefeated reign with the belt for 11 years um and uh, yeah so he has not <laughs> lost this belt um in that time he's not lost a word shoot in that time uh he he didn't even put over muhammad ali so um let's just bear all that in mind uh just as just as a little bit of context for this match inoki's opponent is um a man from uh, i would assume from the name he is georgian um shota chochishvili the best shota in japanese wrestling since umino came along um so shota chochishvili is uh, another olympian uh, and uh, not in amateur wrestling, but in judo. We're kind of including this match because he wasn't actually officially part of the Red Bull Army. He wasn't a, an amateur wrestling but wrestler, but this is part of the whole Japan versus Russia thing. So we're going to uh, we're going to allow it. He was a gold medalist in judo at the 1972 Munich Olympics. Now you may think, oh, that is 17 years before the show. Yes, yes, it is. Um, so um, this is to be uh, contested under a round system, and not only that, but the ropes have been removed for this match. 
and uh antonio inoki's blood sport perfect <laughs> <laughs> oh yes and the ref has a lovely white shirt and bow tie combo on and chojish villi is in his judo gi so they're really going for a legit feel and trying to make it um seem you know very distinct from the matches that you've uh, gone before which i i certainly don't mind because that is what a work shoot is uh, is meant to be now chojish villi uh well well, well, we'll tell you we'll tell you uh, a little bit more about him after this. But um, uh, a man who did not have a lot of pro wrestling matches and uh, very much uh, works this match uh, like it. Um, and that, that is both a good thing and a bad thing uh, in this match. So um, I, I guess we'll just go through it round by round. So there's not a huge amount to write home about in the first round. There's a lot of feeling out. Um, Chosius really does a shove and Inoki nearly stacks it out of the ring, which is um, which is uh, very funny. Uh, and Inoki's first offensive manoeuvre is a headbutt. So he's clearly been uh, taking notes from his old foe Masa Saito uh, but kind of much of the first round looks like it looked like some sort of Elizabethan courtly dance where they're they're sort of it really like, did they're not getting close to each other sort of like curtsying and doing these uh movements it's really it's it's quite it's quite like the first three minutes of Takada versus uh, Hicks and Gracie <laughs> We are we are perilously close to gay Gordon's wrestling here. Um, <laughs> we are like the good kind, not the yes. like nine nine rehearsals a minute uh, reversals a minute. Uh, uh, Jay White uh, bollocks. Um, but yeah, no, we we are quite close to gay Gordon's wrestling. There are actually a few moves uh, to save it from being that. Anoki hits a backdrop and. Uh, uh, Chochish Philly gets up in kind of like Hashimikov in the previous uh, fight. He just looks more flustered than hurt rather than anything. Gives his gear array a range. You can see little Georgian flag motifs uh, in there, which I quite enjoyed. Um, but yeah, pretty much nothing happened in that uh, round. Hashimikov and Berkovich are then seen on the outside giving, giving Chochish Philly's tricep meat and nice rub down. So that's rather nice. I love that. I, I, I love just watching like corners during rounds. Oh, and, yeah. By tenderizing his tricep. (laughs) Seconds in wrestling is just something I like in general. Like there's there's something great about just um seeing well, you know, stardom does like faction warfare, uh, you know, to the nth degree. And uh, you know, that that has its downsides, but there's 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 something real cool about just seeing everyone stable mates just cheering them on on the outside. Or like when the trainees do it, um at other at other, it, it tends to be a, it does seem to be a Joshi thing really like you don't get the young lions in New Japan just like pounding on the ring to cheer Ricardo on although that would be good and make me want to watch his matches more but um, uh, it does seem to be more of a Joshi thing but I really like when uh, seconds get involved and again it makes it seem more like a more like a legit fight uh, which is what they're going for so I, I, I rather enjoyed it um, round two begins with a massive Uranagi from Chojishvili and uh, then he sort of sits in for an arm bar and he's going for the arm bar and uh, even even an inverted one and then he gets up I heard a whistle or I think I heard a whistle it's kind of hard to tell because the yeah. crowd's like quite this but um, so I guess there's rules uh, in this fight about how long you can have the submission on um, yeah because I heard the whistle a couple of times yeah yeah, I, I I think that that was it. It's like it's given me a sort of Vietnam flashback to the bloody bloody uh, amateur wrestling fights from Big Egg Wrestling Universe, where they're having to be stood up every three seconds because they're in the ropes. <laughs> um, that's kind of what it reminds me of. Um, yeah, Inoki, and kind of this is the story of the match, really. Like Inoki's really selling the arm from this armbar. 
uh, even I when I don't think back. he uses it for like the last four rounds. No, it's really, it's really, it's really good selling. Like he's like really like, oh fuck, this really hurts me. Um, and uh, he he ends up in the armbar as the round ends, and then his seconds get involved, and they sort of uh, they they t- tie a towel around his arm like he's about to do some smack, like um, just trying to, uh, hey, yes, I'm going to get the circulation back in your arm by cutting off your circulation. It's a uh, shock therapy. <laughs> um, but um, and uh, and uh, I I don't know if they. Did did it uh, three uh, finger widths uh, from the uh, from the elbow joint, which is what you're meant to do, uh, as uh, taught to me by my Vita puncture training. Just a little pro tip for you in case you're, not in case you wanted to shoot up some skag, but uh, in case you ever wanted to take a blood sample or anything like that. <laughs> do not See, do, you, do not do heroin. It's apparently bad for you. Yeah, it's very Moorish. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're learning everything here. We know we've learned. You know, if you want to watch these matches, learn Cyrillic alphabet. You know how to try a tourniquet and how and how you should definitely not do heroin. Yeah, I think if anything, if you take yeah. anything from this. This is the whole school curriculum this episode. Like it's um, <laughs> certainly one of our more educational offerings. No, no, you know, you know, even Stryker. Yeah, yeah, I know. You've got history, sociology, economics, uh, even more educational than the uh, than the 2017 Christmas special. So um, uh, round round uh, round three begins. Like yes, and, and it's as you say, David. By the time round three starts, Enoki is essentially wrestling with one arm, um, but he's still doing the the rocks just bring it gesture with his other, which I thought was I thought was quite wonderful. Um, and uh, he's basically realizing, okay, I've got one arm. I kind of need to be a little bit, uh, uh, you know, a little bit more aggressive. So he goes for a copo kick, which Church's Philly only just evades, and he's going for like the leg kicks and the uh, the the palm strikes. Um, manages to trip Church's Philly up and locks in a heel hook. Goes for his uh, enzigiri when uh, back to standing, and Anoki's trying to get in there, but the ref's in the way, and you know, kind of kind of another sort of. Uh, uh, which is apparently the planned finish for um, uh, Inoki versus Ali. Where Wait, I forget, what? When when it was going to be a worked match, I think the idea was that um, Ali was going to be wailing on Inoki, and then like the ref would get between them to stop the punishment, and then Inoki would kind of blindside Ali with the enzigiri. So ah. I, I think they did have a planned finish before Ali was like, no, that's not going to work for me, brother. And then it turned into an actual boxing match. <laughs> um, so, um, um, yeah, so I I, I, I I, don't think it was a direct uh, allusion to a, a finish that never actually happened. But I'm also not ruling out that uh, Inoki's ego, uh, you know, would have pre- prevented him from you know, including including that. And sort of like, I, I've waited 13 years to use this spot. Um, and uh, yeah, Church really um takes advantage of this sort of um uh the ref being in the way by taking Inoki down goes for a side headlock Inoki sort of gets his back and is very much not eager to release Chochish Philly when the uh the whistle goes and once again uh Chochish Philly is uh in the ascendancy when the round ends he's got Inoki in a rear naked choke and then even better than the towel um Inoki's arm gets the magic spray Yes, we we run one round away from the magic sponge here. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Absolutely, like uh, Fujian Army's gonna be cramming a segment of orange in his mouth after round four. <laughs> we'll be getting you, like the, uh, the football home remedies or the classic ones. Get the Ralgex and DPO. <laughs> 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 oh man so like, i really I, I really like that and like me, meanwhile chochish villi's uh seconds not even needing to rub down his tricep meat like um you know he's 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 clearly he's clearly on top and but like you kind of think at this point okay well like 
a lot of these Anoki work shoots did follow that formula where he's getting um, beaten down by the guy's superior martial arts technique. And then he somehow uh, finds a way to win through the power of pro wrestling and of strong style. Uh, so we'll just see if that comes to pass. Uh, round four. Well, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if you're in the crowd, you're like, man, Inoki's really getting his arse handed to him. But he is on an 11-year title reign. He's yes, lost to like, three people ever, one of which was because he swallowed his tongue. Um, <laughs> absolutely. He's obviously not going to lose. I think between... Um, I'm about to check my ears, but like... Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's correct. Like 1985... Till 1988, there was a period of three years, Inoki did not get pinned. Um, and like the, the first person to do it uh, after that time was Vader when it started to riot. So, um, like that shows you how strongly Inoki was booked in pro wrestling at the time, never mind uh, any work shoot. So, yeah, the crowd are no doubt at this point thinking, well, obviously he's going to win. And it's the, it's the first Tokyo Dome show. Inoki is obviously going over. Um, so round four, it's kind of a little bit nothingy round four. Um, there's a there's a bit of like a bit, a bit of grappling, a bit of stand up. Uh, Inoki's trying to do grappling with one arm, which is uh, which is very good. He try he tries a headbutt, does some leg kicks. Trisha really trips him up, so he's, he's on his back. And I think for one beautiful minute, they're actually going to do the leg kick spot from the Muhammad Ali fight. <laughs> I uh, thought that as well. I was like, no way. Because <laughs> he always got a pop whenever he does it. And it's absolutely amazing the degree to which um, that was retconned in the imaginary of the New Japan fans as being like something that was you know, clever and wily rather than like Inoki not wanting to get into a fair fight. And to be honest, I wouldn't want to get into a fair fight with the World Heavyweight Boxing Champion. But like, it is amazing like however that spot became and how Inoki managed to sort of, uh, you know, re-portray it as something heroic. See, it gets a pop now at some shows in Japan if someone did the spot because it's so famous. I mean, it was so famous that, um, and actually I found out why this was. Um, um, the the fight actually, I, I think there was highlights on British TV of uh, yeah. Ali Zanoki. And that is why when uh, she met um, uh, Ali a month later, uh, Queen Elizabeth II asked him how his legs were. Because her and uh, her and uh, Prince Philip, who is in hell, uh, were both uh, massive World of Sport fans, apparently. Uh, so, like, they they presumably watched the fight, and so uh, yeah, the, the the Queen of England um, talked to Muhammad Ali about uh, uh, you know the violence visited upon him by another great diplomat. Um, so, um... do you think we could get her on to review some World of Sport at some point? <laughs> I want. Imagine, imagine if that was. Imagine if her last words were, "I don't think most of that Clive Myers match." I know. I think her last words would be "Big Daddy" for the Observer Hall of Fame. <laughs> Do you think if the Queen dies, that's what's finally going to get Daddy in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> Just oh, like the outpouring of nationalistic fervor from the British people, mixed with their with their their countervailing grief, would uh, is wrestling would get him over that sixty percent mark? Is Wrestling Observer Radio just going to have to play sad music all day? <laughs> Has Dave Meltzer got a contingency plan for when the Queen dies? <laughs> it's just going to be Alvarez trying to stick to the contingency plan and like Meltzer's trying to talk about like Eddie Graham or something. <laughs> oh. They're going to play like a really like a really mournful piano cover of Mr. Howard Masao's theme. 
<laughs> what would be the best um, Prince Philip remix of a wrestling theme? What's the best <laughs> one you'd like to see Prince Philip remixed? <laughs> well, you like just played 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 at a royal funeral or like um... yeah, yeah, like you know, like the, like on Radio One on the day. I'm I, this is like it's been a long time we've been away, but by God, we've saved up. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all coming um, out now. All the anti-monarchist ferment. Well, you know, on Radio 1, when Prince Philip died, and he yeah, did die, yeah. much like Thatcher, he did die. <laughs> yeah. um, Rangers. Um, yeah, and Rangers, yes. <laughs> um, when, when Prince Philip died, they changed uh, Radio 1 so they could only play like, sad instrumental covers of <laughs> all the Radio 1 songs. So it'd be like the Scissor Sisters. Um, you, um, I don't feel like dancing, but it'd be like sad and mournful and acoustic on piano. Um <laughs> What if you if you had to choose a sad a, a wrestling theme tune to be done in a sad Prince Philip remix way? Which one would you choose? Ooh, that is a um. I actually think because I have one. I actually think Inoki's theme would work would, would weirdly work quite well. I what I want is um I want a mournful piano cover of Takamichinoku's uh theme, <laughs> but like before it, someone says Taka is coming, motherfucker, in a really sad voice. The Queen has died, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got two. Oh, I go on. Uh, no, well, no, maybe I've got three. Right, so uh, Masahiro Chono, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck your monarchist gonna do. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, now Michi Marafuji. Here we go. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very much going to be saying what's at the start of Marafuji's theme, like when all the tweets come in and like everyone we know gets permabanned. <laughs> um, and um, of course, um, it's sap time as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> just get like all the all the bugle the, like the bugle players to do like that to start of the like from tripping the car. <laughs> What what I feel like we need to do when the Queen dies is just give give Sarah command of our Twitter account for like three or four days. Just <laughs> tell her to change our password to something that we cannot guess. <laughs> I feel like I feel like she needs to save us from ourselves. Oh God, I know I'm I'm gonna have to stay off Twitter, but I I don't know. I think we should record. You know how like they have contingency plans for when the Queen dies. <laughs> I think we should maybe record a contingency plan and literally they say like I'll just save it on a cloud and oh, then just like put it out yes. um, like, like the minute do, or, like, it's just a special episode like when the Queen dies and it's it's just like doing a really straight review of a World of Sport match. <laughs> Can we please do that? I think that would be really funny. Like, I'll literally keep it on a, a, pen, a, a USB pen for like nine years. Yes, please. And then literally, and they go, I'll be like, and I'll be, I'll, I'll like have, somehow have like a, an actual job by that point and be like on business in like fucking Saudi Arabia or something like that. And they'll have stopped the podcast like six years ago because we disagreed <laughs> over like um over some nonsense and then like i'll just be like excuse me i'm just gonna have to leave this important but uh, somebody come into the business you think and they'll be like i eh, just want to tell you and the queen has died says excuse me for a moment just get my pen drive out and then just immediately boom pure pre-podcast queen dying special 
Um, I think that that's we should do that. That would be good I, fun. I, I I think I think maybe we should like have each each keep half of the wav like the coke recipe. <laughs> And so we have to have an agreement to release it between the two. <laughs> okay, let's let's get get our get, get our queen funeral faces on. Um, so um, yeah, so uh, round round five, uh, and this ends up being the uh, being the final round. Uh, so the this is great. Like Cho just really clearly has like a really rudimentary understanding of wrestling storytelling because like round five he just immediately goes to the finishing sequence. It's like ah, oh, this is the round in which I'm meant to win. And um, so he does a backdrop and he leaves Inoki to take a 10 count. Uh, Inoki's up at eight, looking somewhat dazed. Uh, tries one last desperation copo kick. I really like that spot. Chojo's really completely no-sells it. Hits a Uranagi for another eight count. And then a second Uranagi. And Chojo's really wins by knockout. They'll be partying in the streets of Tbilisi tonight. Um, so the, round, the story of the round was basically Chojo's really saying, yeah, I'm done with this. Uh, I'm just going to steamroller this guy. Enoki hands Chochis Philly the belt. And there is some mutual respect and also a shot of a trophy with a certificate ignominiously stuffed inside it, which I found <laughs> quite funny. Um, supposedly. Uh, so, yeah, this is uh, Enoki's first defeat in a work shoot ever, including Muhammad Ali. Um, like this is a really big deal. Uh, like Enoki has chosen this moment the biggest crowd his promotion has ever done, with the exception... Uh, well, no, actually, the Pyongyang shows haven't happened yet, have they? So, yeah, the biggest crowd his um, promotion has ever done, and he chooses to put someone over in the main event. Um, supposedly, uh, after this, uh, Luthez said to him, tonight you became a businessman. Uh, and I think there was a recognition that Inoki is a guy who certainly at some level understood that there was value in the chase. Um, the, the, the other right, really significant defeat in his career, uh, he, he jobbed in the main event of the first ever New Japan show uh, to Carl Gotch to set up a, uh, a rematch in which he beat him. So, but like, I think somewhere along the way, Inoki's ego had <laughs> become somewhat outsized, hence the run for parliament. And um, he had uh, ceased like putting people over in that fashion, even when it was warranted. So I think Thez was seemingly very impressed by Inoki putting Chochishvili over. Um, Inoki did regain the belt in Osaka the next month. Uh, so on the same show where Hashimakov won the IWGP belt from Big Van Vader. Um, so uh, Chochishvili's uh, moment uh, as the uh, WWF World Martial Arts Champion was um, short-lived, but um, I think we can safe, safely say he was quite possibly the only Russian to, who was actually Russian to have held a WWF belt. Like, yeah, like my, my overriding emotion with this was how fucking pissed off would you be if you were literally any of the New Japan roster? Oh members? God, yeah, if you were, <laughs> well. Choshu, who uh, Inoki um, famously did a fuck finish with to set up the Vader match on the show that caused the riot, and that was really the um, the result for the riot rather than Inoki losing. It was that the fans were being screwed out of a match that, that was really anticipated. Uh, Inoki had let Fujin Army pin him in a tag match, um, but yeah, you yeah, I, I never thought of that before. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. If you're if you're uh, more of point, players, how pissed off would you be when you fucking won the belt back a month later? It's, it's meaningless, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely meaningless. Absolutely. Um, if you were Masa Saito, it's like it wouldn't even put me over in a in a cinematic fight on a, on a deserted island. <laughs> um, I love this, George. I, oh, it's, yeah. it's such like it, like I think the easiest way to explain it is that this transcends wrestling, right? This isn't a wrestling match, or clearly not. It's a work shoot, whatever, martial arts match, whatever. This isn't. You don't watch this like a normal wrestling match, or you would like. You can't 
it is, it is like it's watching a boxing match. Boxing matches, by and large, are usually pretty drek. Unless it's yeah. like three hundred and fifty pound butter beans just knocking <laughs> yeah, each other and you're going immediately for KOs. Boxing's quite boring, but it's all about the razzle dazzle. It's about everything around it. It's about setting the scene and it's about the the atmosphere and just about the palpable tension of something might happen. You know what? what how is this going to go? And the crowd clearly bought into it because, of course, it's a Nokia. He's not lost in like eight thousand years. Yeah. Like, but they're always it's it's like the Undertaker streak of you know people were like, Undertaker will win, but they still bet. It, it has that it has that razzle dazzle, that je ne sais quoi, as we say. Um, this was a, this is a total like boxing match in terms of atmosphere, and that's why I love watching an Nokia because Nokia matches aren't just wrestling matches. You can't grade them like. A normal wrestling match. They are an event in themselves. They are a rock concert. They are a boxing match. They are a cultural event, and they're yeah. always really fascinating to watch. It's pure spectacle, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah. Like it's and and like that. That's the thing I think that New Japan always excelled at, and even in the um in the the nineties, where you would certainly say that uh, certainly that the the main event scene in all Japan was new, streets ahead of uh, New Japan, and really streets ahead of anything um as, as, aside from like the the AJW stuff. But um you know. I, New Japan always had the spectacle and it it always had the kind of, you know, Bar, Giant Barber was a very conservative booker and Inoki really wasn't. And, uh, you know, they, they, you know they're fascinating personalities uh, just in terms of like they're very different people and also very different approaches to pro wrestling. But New Japan always had the spectacle. And uh, I think that's the important thing to know. And, uh, you know, but, you need a spectacle match at this this show, uh, you know, the first ever stadium show uh, in the in the company's history. But did Inoki ever put his angif over Gary Albright on an aircraft carrier? <laughs> I think not. Yeah, like that. That is a very good point. So, and uh, yes, that was the show. That was Battle Satellite in Tokyo Dome. I believe the whole show is on New Japan World. So, if for whatever reason you're still a subscriber, then you can uh, log in and watch these matches if you would like. And you can watch all the other uh, stuff that you want to see. Uh, Luthez attempt to referee a match at the age of 73 years old. Be my guest. Really interesting to see all this stuff. I think I think this this kind of thing it works more successfully in some of the matches than than others. But um, I think it it was certainly something very different and provided like a, a really uh, you know uh, a really captivating uh, through line for the show. That you know, as I say, it's a big stadium show. You need something to sell it. Why not get in a load of Russians? As for what we're going to be doing in subsequent um, episodes in this run, we shall have Daniel back for those once he's um, once he's recovered from melting into a puddle. The, what we want to do for the next episode, that'll be episode 25, is um, so after this, New Japan did another stadium show at the end of uh, 1989, New Year's Eve 1989, to be precise. Now, Inoki became later known for his spectacular New Year's Eve Inoki Bombay shows. Um, but did he, at that point, do a show at the motherfucking Lenin Stadium in Moscow? <laughs> I think not. So uh, that's, we are going to be covering some matches from that show involving 
some of the guys David named from the Red Bull Army, uh, Zalatov and Viktorchev et al. Uh, people we didn't uh, that I, I don't think wrestled on this show, but uh, we, we're going to uh, cover their matches on that. And then we're going to get into what uh, the Red Bull Army did after New Japan. So we're going to uh, cover some Hashimikov, Zangiev and Berkovic matches from UWFI. And we'll be seeing uh, how they tangled with uh, not just uh, pro wrestling guys playing at shoot style, but real proper shoot style wrestlers. And after that, in the uh, the sub- subsequent episode, episode number 26, we will be going outside of the Red Bull Army to look at other Russian shooters, uh, mostly in rings. So we are talking Volkan, Andrei Kopolov, Mikhail Lilyakin, Taril Bitsadze, Grom Zaza, all those guys, you name it. We're going to uh, we're gonna get into some rings for the first time on the podcast. That's going to be really exciting. Can't wait for that. Episode 27 is going to, uh, we're going to go back to our, um, uh, the, <laughs> the kind of stuff we did in the Big Egg Podcasting Universe with Zoe. Um, the is this a shoot or is this a work we should get her on for this actually maybe uh just to yeah. uh just 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 to see like because uh, i i really want to know uh what she would make of uh shinobu kandori versus svetlana gundarenko and <laughs> kira maeda versus alexander karelin um so we're gonna we're gonna do um uh pro wrestler versus martial artist in uh a match which is ostensibly a shoot but probably wasn't um so that's going to be the uh focus of that and then finally we are going to see what wrestlers from former soviet republics were doing in uh in the 21st century so uh i i, I know what you're thinking are we going to be reviewing vladimir kozlov versus jerome labano in igf you better fucking believe we are <laughs> Um, so uh, I and I've also found the platonic ideal of a triple P favorite wrestler, uh, but you'll have to wait for episode 28 for us to get over him and just why he was wrestling Katsuyori Shibata. Um, so uh, lots to look forward to with this run. We're really pumped to do this. Like I say, it has been uh, five years in the making. We have had to record this episode again. Um, so uh, like the, think... we take five years to actually record <laughs> and release. I think that proves just how uh, like eager we are to bring this uh, to you. Could have just sacked it off, but uh, no, we're just like, yeah, no, we're, we're doing it. We are doing Triple C, Triple P, and we're going to see it through right past the fall of communism and into the present day. Uh, I should say temporary fall of communism because it will, of course, come back. So uh, with that being said, I believe all that we need to do is to do plugs. So, David, would you like to lead off? Yes, so um, I run a party festival uh, podcast called Draw, Lose or Draw. I focused over the last couple of months on making episodes that are actually listenable if you're not a festival fan. So, because <laughs> obviously there is there is a room for a weekly analysis show of talking about the latest injury woes and why we shouldn't have conceded Fortin and Fairman and all that. But the, it, that's not very good if you're not into festival, and we appreciate that, right? So. I've made a lot of efforts to make stuff that people who don't like watch, don't watch Whistle can listen to. So, for example, I'm doing an audio collage. Um, we won the League One title last year. Um, we won 5-0, five whole goals against yeah. Falkirk in the title winning game. It was insane. We weren't allowed to go because of coronavirus. The stadium was empty. However, a whole squad of fans uh, went up to the canal and set off smoke bombs and like just celebrated and partied and they partied in Farhill Road and stuff and it was a wonderful atmosphere and we decided to make a, a documentary so it's it covers and now for full disclosure I did not go to the canal not because I was being hoity-toity but literally because I was working till seven o'clock and couldn't get there <laughs> but um so we've included we got everyone to record voice notes from before the game we included 
uh, recordings from on the canal of people celebrating. We've got people who interviewed from the canal as well. Me and Matt were sat in Skype and watched the game and recorded the whole game on the Skype of us talking nonsense and Matt <laughs> airing several recriminations against, in his words, huddy clubs like Queen of the South and Falkirk, uh, which is all delightful. And um, as well as that, we spoke to someone who actually was in the stadium for the game, uh, our friend James Kearney, who's the uh, journalist of the Evening Times. Um, he was there um, to watch it in person. So the people who were in the ground, outside, at home, from through the night and past and present of all things and kind of mashed it into an audio collage just to kind of talk about what it meant to fans, what it meant to the club, why people were willing to travel multiple miles to go from places like Airdrie and Edinburgh to Maryhill to break COVID restrictions to go sit in the canal and just not be able to see a quarter of the pitch um, because they just wanted to be there and the sort of atmosphere around it. So that will be coming out at the end of July. I believe it's the 30th of July, the Friday. It's the day before the season starts, basically. But I would definitely check that out, um, even if you're not a Thistle fan, even if you're not particularly a football fan. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Just It's a social thing of talking about why everyone went and partied and just what it meant to people. So I definitely suggest that. A whole bunch of other episodes that we did are nonsense as well. Um, but yeah, I've done that. Yeah, as well as that, I make some weird music at fastbook.bandcamp.com. And as well as that, Daniel, um, our usual host, he makes music at handwomenmen.bandcamp.com. And if you want to find me on any social media, I am generally under Viano14, as in the Viano family, but I'm the 14th member of it. So, yeah, you can get me on those. Cool. Um, So, uh, my own shit to plug. Um, I will start with... Uh, my Twitch stream, uh, twitch.tv forward slash Lord Tenpai, L-O-R-D-T-E-N-P-A-I. Uh, so what that is, is a uh, an amazing pun on a mahjong term and uh, the, the greatest Japanese wrestler in the history of Dulului, Lord Tensai. Um, so uh, basically what I do, 8pm uh, UK time every Thursday, I play some mahjong on the internet and I commentate over it. So it's a good learning resource if you are uh in looking to get into mahjong uh for example if you just can't get the achievements for it on uh any of the yakuza series or on final fantasy 14 um or if you or if you or if you just like shooting the shit like you know some of my content is taking you through my moves sometimes i'm, I'm just uh, chatting shit about keir starmer so like you know it's, it's all, all good fun for the whole family um so twitch.tv forward slash lord tenpai um yes and uh uh, the novel I mentioned earlier in the episode, I did a very subtle plug. I think I got away with it. Uh, the Rise and Fall of Ricky Dozan, available for uh, £2.49 for the Kindle and uh, £17.99 uh, paperback. What it is, is I had to put the price up because the uh, printing costs had gone up, which is a bit of a bastard. Um, but um, it is a novel about the birth of professional wrestling in Japan. So a subject close to my heart. Uh, it follows my protagonist as he grow from teenage wrestling fan to junior employee within the uh, Japanese Wrestling Association company, getting closer to his idol, Ricky Dozan, who was the uh, the, the first uh, wrestling superstar in the history of the country, and uh, you know finding out that his idol is not necessarily who he believed him to be. So it is really a look at how wrestling explains uh, Japanese society uh, in the late 50s and uh, early 60s. If you don't know anything about Japanese wrestling or even anything about wrestling at all, um, 
then don't worry, I've written it in a way so that you don't actually need to know anything about them to understand it. Um, uh, conversely, I've also had some very positive reviews from people who do know a great deal about uh, 1950s uh, Japanese wrestling, and uh, there are people like that about, who knew? So, um, that's what I've got to plug. I've also got a uh, chapter in a book called uh, 100 Greatest Literary Detectives. Um, I wrote about the Jasper Ford heroine uh, Thursday Next. Um, I have no idea how I managed to get published in a book about uh, detective fiction, but I have been. So if you're interested in that, it's kind of a uh, uh, accessible book written by uh, proper ac- academics. So I don't know what I was doing in there, but um, and just just uh, just a nice little guide to um, uh, detective fiction, give you some uh, ideas for uh, further reading if you're into if you're into crime stuff. Um, and finally, I should plug the uh, the podcast uh, socials so um i say socials as one social is twitter we we love using twitter uh, at puro podcast at p-u-r-o-p-o-d-c-a-s-t you can also f- listen to us on soundcloud on itunes and on stitcher radio uh so uh, yes do like and subscribe uh, check our shit out and tell your friends Oh, uh, just before you go out, I've just realised I've got one plug that I totally forgot. Um, oh, go for it. Um, starting from next week, um, I'll be hosting a show on GB News. It's me and Dan Wooten talking about <laughs> how there's microchips in your vaccine and immigrants are coming to steal your babies. Um, so check that out, 8pm on Tuesdays. Um, let's get Brexit done, lads. <laughs> So uh, th- thank you very much. How could I uh, possibly forget that? So um, it falls to me to say thank you very much for listening to episode 24 of the Puro Puro podcast. We will return in episode 25, the uh, the Silver Jubilee. And uh, to say goodbye to you in what I'm sure is flawless Russian. David, the floor is all yours. Dos Thank you very much. See you.